I just really feel strongly that I want to race, but I'm not gonna sell my soul so that I can race. It's not that important to me, whereas the causes to me, these are the most important challenges that the human race has ever faced. I mean, we're, we're living through the sixth mass extinction of species. We're killing off plants and animals at a rate that's like a thousand times faster than the normal natural background rate. Ocean acidification, climate change, all of these things. This is too big to ignore. I mean, all of us have to try and become part of the solution, and that includes NASCAR fans and, you know, fans of every sport. We can't just be talking to our friends. They're harder conversations to have, right? It's hard to sit and talk to somebody who you know coming to the table is on the other side of you and doesn't agree with what you're saying, but that's how you eventually change people. That's Leilani Munter, this week on the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. How you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. I am your host. Welcome to my podcast, the show where each week I delve deep with some of the most inspiring and compelling thought leaders I can find across all categories of health, fitness, athletic performance, medicine, entrepreneurship, spirituality, creativity. You get the idea. Really appreciate you guys tuning in today for subscribing, for sharing the show with your friends, for leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, for supporting my work via Patreon. Really happy and grateful, mostly grateful to have your attention here today. Got a super interesting show for you uh, today. I sit down with the super cool professional race car driver, passionate vegan, and environmental activist, Leilani Munter. So who is this person? Uh, Leilani has been racing in the Arca Series, which is a development league of NASCAR. Leilani is the fourth woman in history to race in the Indy Pro Series, which is the development league of IndyCar. She set the record for the highest finish for a female driver in the history of the Texas Motor Speedway when she finished fourth in 2006. And Sports Illustrated named her one of the top 10 female race car drivers in the world. But what's really interesting about Leilani, beyond the inherently intriguing appeal of being one of only a few female NASCAR drivers, is that for her, racing or winning or performance really take a backseat to using her profile and specifically her car, her race car, as a means to spread the things that she's passionate about, environmental awareness. Uh, And she really puts her money where her mouth is. She was one of the first activists to arrive at the 2010 Gulf oil disaster. She's been to Taji, Japan three times to document the dolphin slaughter depicted in the Academy Award-winning documentary, The Cove. She has spoken at the UN in Geneva in 2015. On numerous occasions, she has appeared on Capitol Hill to speak on behalf of clean energy legislation. Uh, And since 2007, for every race she runs, she adopts one acre of rainforest. So that's pretty cool. She sits on the board of the Oceanic Preservation Society and on the advisory board of the Solutions Project, which is a nonprofit dedicated to accelerating the transition to 100% renewable energy. Her accomplishments have been profiled in USA Today, Italian Vogue, The New York Times, Washington Post, Reader's Digest, Esquire, Newsweek. You get the idea. Many, many more. Uh, Discovery's Planet Green named her the number one echo athlete in the world, and she is a recipient of Elle Magazine's 2012 Genius Award, and also Glamour Magazine named her an echo hero. 
Uh, many of you might know Leilani from the 2015 documentary Racing Extinction uh, that was made by the filmmakers behind The Cove, which won the Academy Award. Leilani appears in that film, Racing Extinction. If you haven't seen it, you should check it out. And if all of that isn't enough for you, uh, Leilani's brother-in-law is Grateful Dead guitarist and singer Bob Weir. So that in and of itself is kind of amazing. Got a few more notable things I want to say about Leilani and this podcast, the episode coming up. We all get it. Sometimes the news can really wear you down. That's why Wildcard, a new podcast from NPR, feels like a solution. It's an interview show that gives a special deck of cards to a whole bunch of fascinating guests, all in the hopes of sorting out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential, deep dive, all party game. Wildcard comes out every Thursday from NPR. Listen to it wherever you get your podcasts. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed with tons of additives and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested, or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com slash richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's L-I-V-E-M-O-M-E-N-T-O-U-S.com slash richroll for 20% off. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. 
To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. All right, today's show. You know who else is great? Leilani is great. She's just a super strong, powerful female role model and so much more than meets the eye, so much more than just a race car driver. So in this conversation, uh, we, of course, discuss her upbringing, what motivated her, what led her to become a race car driver, what it's like to be a female race car driver in a male-dominated sport, essentially what it means to kind of buck the NASCAR stereotype. We talk about how she incorporates her vegan lifestyle and her environmental activism into the NASCAR subculture. But mostly, this is a discussion about her why, which, again, is less about performance. It's less about winning races and much more, if not almost entirely, about her activism, essentially, or specifically, I should say, environmental preservation. As Leilani is fond of saying, never underestimate a vegan hippie chick with a race car. And after listening to this conversation, I'm sure you will agree. So let's talk to her. Never underestimate a vegan hippie chick in a race car. That's the tagline, right? That's it. Where did you come up with that? Uh, I think, um, I mean, I've, I've used it for ages. I've probably used, used that line as vegetarian before because I, I went vegan almost six years ago now. Uh-huh. So it used to be never underestimate a vegetarian hippie chick with a race car. And then um, five and a half years ago, almost six years ago now, I went vegan. And so I changed it. And uh, I think, you know, people are just, I'm kind of an oddball in the racing world, right? Like... I'm very liberal. I come from a science background. Mm-hmm. I'm vegan. Um, yeah, I'm I mean, fighting it, for things that other people <laughs> in the racing world are not. So I'm kind of. I think that's an understatement. <laughs> you know, you are definitely confusing in the world in which you habitate, right? I mean, it's super interesting to, and and everything that has happened since that was like 2011 when you went vegan, right? Like yeah. So many things have happened in your life since then. I mean. It's crazy how not just the vegan movement has exploded, but the kind of awareness around the activism that you've done because of the world in which you live uh, has sent ripple effects out in a really powerful way. It's It's been really cool to kind of watch this happen from afar, and I'm surprised that we've <laughs> never actually met in person, so I'm really glad to be sitting down with you today. Yeah, it's really great to be here. It's cool. So the most, I mean, probably the most recent you know, big thing that occurred was you racing Daytona in the in the vegan powered car, right? Absolutely. That yes. was in February. That was in February. I'd been working on the vegan car for years. I mean, really right after I went vegan. Um, and even when I was vegetarian, I was trying to talk to, you know, the meat substitutes, the the vegan cheeses, those kinds of companies. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have, they, pre- to- they don't have the, the marketing budget for a NASCAR advertisement by, do they? Well, some of them do. Now some of them do. What does Back it usually cost it- to get those stickers on those? I mean, every inch of those cars is covered 
Yeah, so for me to run the big tracks like Daytona, and I'm actually coming back in the vegan-powered car at Talladega on May 5th. Oh, that's exciting. Um, those those bigger races are about $100,000 uh, for the race car, mm-hmm. um, to run the race car. And then on top of that, we didn't just do the race car. I felt like it was a really important part, and sort of the goal of the campaign was to get vegan food into the race fans mouths Mm -hmm. and um, so we didn't just do the race car so we about doubled the cost to 200,000 because we had a tent with vegan food um, I had Jason Stefanko from uh, from Gardein, the chef right. from Gardein, He's out there. Best. He was cooking vegan food, and we were giving away free samples to the fans. And you and had, uh, like, Robert Cheek and David Carter were there, too. Yes. You invited had- me. Thank you for inviting me. I couldn't yes. make it out there. I wish I could have gone. It must have been so cool. It was so yeah. cool. Maybe you could come to Talladega. I'll look into it. It's on Friday, May 5th. And, um, you know, the reaction from the race fans was amazing. We, we obviously brought the kind of food that you would normally find at the racetrack. So we had like vegan chicken wings, uh, vegan tenders that were, you know, being dipped in follow your heart ranch dressing. Um, and we had vegan meatballs and I mean, just over and over all day long, all I heard was, I can't believe this is vegan. How do they do that? And Uh then the second question that they would ask is, um, where can I buy this? And so it was really great to be able to tell them, you know, Walmart, Target, you can find this Mm -hmm. anywhere. Any grocery store carries this stuff. So that's for it to be so accessible to them. And, And I think one of the things that really resonated, you know, I am vegan for animal rights and environmental reasons. I'm definitely not like, you know... I'm not a junk food person, but I definitely eat like vegan macaroni and yeah, cheese. You like and the McNuggets and the. I do, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. not like a super, super healthy vegan. I'm sure I do kale and quinoa and things like that too. But I definitely like the, you know, the vegan sort of junk food. And um, so I don't really talk a ton about the health side of it, just because that wasn't the thing that that had reached me it was it was for the animals and for the planet um but when we were with the race fans we just you know a lot of people are trying to lose weight and they're unhealthy and they're at risk of diabetes and heart disease and all of these problems um that a plant-based diet can be a really big part of the solution so when we were handing you know we had thousands of fans there but when we were handing them the sample i would say you know half the calories half the fat all the protein zero cholesterol Mm -hmm. and i was seeing you know husbands and wives looking at each other and you know families telling me oh we have a lot of diabetes in our family or we have heart disease and he's already had a heart attack and I think the the health message actually really really resonated with the fans, yeah. um, especially at the track where you know you're eating junk food. It's like pizza well, yeah, it's and big French fries. And, and, yeah, of course, right. So did you have you had like a tent set up in the in the middle of the track, like in the that what do you call it, the infield? Like it wasn't in the infield. It was actually outside, which is even better because you got everybody as they were going in. So uh-huh. it's right at the entrance to the racetrack. So there's all kinds of tents set up, and we had a duplicate of my vegan powered race car. Um, so that brings a lot of people in and, you know, little kids could get into my race car and take pictures of right. them behind the wheel. Um, and, uh, yeah, we just gave away so many, so many samples and it was, I never heard a negative reaction. There wasn't a single person 
that took a bite and didn't like it. Everybody was surprised and mm-hmm. shocked, you know, and it was, it was, it was really fun because I was, you know, I was talking to guys that are, were like wearing camouflage and, right. you know, are hunters and NASCAR fans and they're standing there looking at me saying, this is amazing vegan food. Like, where can I buy this? And that's, I think, that's really powerful, right? If you want to change something, you have to get outside of the box and talk to people that don't agree with you and are not on board. If you're a vegan company or a vegan activist and you're just going around to conferences with other vegans or, you know, in my environmental world, a lot yeah, of time the echo chamber. Yeah. yeah, the echo chamber. I mean, that's that's one of the things about what's so powerful about what you do because it's so outside the box of the typical, you know, vegan animal rights you know environmentally conscious you know person that you're going to meet walking down the street in venice or in tribeca you know what i mean like this is middle america these are average everyday people this is most of the people in the united states i mean we're talking about uh the second largest sport in america right like how many people watch nascar it's like Um, a 45 billion dollar industry yeah, millions and millions of people watch. And um, I mean, that's the same reason that I'm bringing the, the environmental message there, too, is because I go to all of these clean energy events and, you know, documentaries that are raising awareness about this stuff. But if I want to change something and I want the race fans to see it, I can't expect them to show up at a clean energy conference right. or like, <laughs> right. you know, some environmental film festival. That's not, meet them that's where not they're what at. they're interested in. And they're yeah, at NASCAR. So, right, right. So with, um, with both the Cove and um, Blackfish, what we did was um, I did crowdfunding and raised the funds to to get the Cove car and the track at Daytona, and then mm-hmm. the Blackfish car was at Talladega. Most and that, of that was that was Sam Simon, right? That yeah, that. almost all of it. So we we tried to do crowdfunding, and I had raised a little bit, like seventy five hundred bucks or something, and then Sam swooped in and sort of saved uh-huh. saved the day and covered the rest of the cost. And um, and we brought DVDs and we gave away DVDs of of the Cove and Blackfish to the fans. So when they, when you do the autograph signings and they normally just get, you know, a picture of the driver with the car and it's a little promo thing for them to take home. We were also handing them a DVD of the mm-hmm. film. Um, and so uh, it was this sort of similar concept with the vegan car was to, you know, put the vegan food in their mouths and kind of just change their mind with them being able to taste it. Cause I honestly think a lot of people that aren't vegan hear the word vegan and they immediately think that I live off of salad and quinoa and kale and carrots and it's all super healthy and I'm not going to like it. And it's not what I grew up eating. It's not the comfort foods that I love. And I'm standing there just saying, no, you can have vegan macaroni and cheese and vegan Mm -hmm. ice cream and everything that you can possibly crave. There is a vegan version of it. I just had in, um, I was in Tokyo and I had a vegan cheese fondue at a restaurant. So anything that you want is now out there. So if you can have all the flavors and you can have all the taste, um, you're not giving up or sacrificing anything. And it's, you know, with all the benefits that we, we know for the planet, for the animals, for your own health, it just doesn't make any sense. There are no excuses left mm-hmm. to not eat plant-based well, especially here in LA where yeah, you guys have yeah. so many amazing uh, you're preaching in my echo chamber right now like <laughs> I, I'm with you but I, I'm imagining 
you know, the guy that shows up in NASCAR in his camouflage or whatever, and he's grumbling under his breath, like, what is she doing here? Who does she think she is? Like, I'm sure you're on the receiving end of quite a bit of that. It, it happens online really more than in person. I mean, maybe there were those people there at Daytona, but they didn't come to the tent or mm-hmm. give me a hard time. Um, yeah, no, everybody that stopped was just so impressed with the food. And I knew that that would be the case. I knew that what had to happen was they just have to try the food. And and once they can see, oh my gosh, I can eat like chicken wings and and there's no animals in this and this is healthier for me, that we were going to change so many minds. And I've seen a bunch of race fans commenting on, you know, my social media on Facebook and Twitter and just telling me like, I, I was at your tent at Daytona and I've been buying the vegan, you know, meats now. <laughs> and it's, it's amazing. It's it's, yeah, it's great. Uh, Landon Castle tells me the same, you know, Landon, right? Yes, I do. So he's a friend, he's been on the podcast, but he said that people come up to him all the time. Like sometimes when other people aren't looking, but they're like, hey, tell me how you do this. And like, how can I do this myself? And, you know, his experience in NASCAR with that kind of one-on-one interaction with the fans and the people that kind of orbit that world um, is very different than what you would imagine sort of stereotypically would come to mind. For, yeah, for certain. I mean, I think there's a lot of stereotyping of NASCAR fans and people think uh, the same thing happens with the environment. They think, oh, you know, because they like fast cars, they don't care about clean air and clean water. And that's just not true. And um, it's really just about opening people's eyes and reaching out to them and trying to have the conversation. If you're going to try and change the world, you can't run around and preach to the choir. And I have found, and I think I'm one of the people that really walks this line of where I'm kind of in between these two worlds. Half my life is in, you know, the environmental world and the vegan world and the activist world. And then I also have this racing life. And I see that there's a lot more crossover than people give them credit for. Yeah, I mean, I would say that, I mean, you're, you're sort of describing that as two different worlds, but those worlds bleed together more than they do for any other driver that I know. I don't know of any other driver that brings their point of view or their whatever they're into, like whatever they're you know interested in, into the racing world to the extent that you do. For, for me, from my perspective, as a very much an outsider who knows very little about NASCAR and racing in general, um, it, it would appear to me that these are one and the same for you. They are. I mean, I know from the outside people hear, you know, environmental activist and race car driver, and they think, how can those two possibly go together? But for me, they're, they're endlessly intertwined and one really doesn't exist without the other because I made a conscious choice um, many years ago that I didn't want to race unless I was promoting something that I believed in, you know, so my cars have carried, like I said, those documentaries and I've had solar and wind on my car, um, clean energy stuff, promoting, you know, legislative changes to help us get to hundred percent renewable energy, you know, the vegan car, they're all things that I really fight for when I'm away from the racetrack. Um, and not behind the wheel. And so it's a much deeper thing to me. It's not just like a logo on a car. And and many of the drivers, I mean, I'd say most of the drivers that I race with, they just want to race cars. Mm-hmm. You know, that is their 100% their main passion. Whereas for me, you know, racing is a passion. I love to race. 
Um, but I find more satisfaction and more, um, more reward in, in being an activist. And so to be able to use the race car as sort of a billboard for the activism is, I mean, for me, I just look at it as an incredible opportunity that I have this 200 mile an hour billboard that can reach all of these people that normally, you know, I think the environmental world and the vegan world can struggle to reach them mm-hmm. because, you know, they're hanging out at the racetrack. You're not seeing a ton of vegan food. You're not right. seeing a lot of environmental messages. So, you know, like we power my race car, my pit box is powered by solar. We've got a portable solar uh, thing that we bring yeah. Is anybody else? Adu- you started that in like 2014, right? Yeah, Doing yeah. That. So the whole pit crew solar powered. Yeah. And I saw an interview with one of your pit guys, and he's like, "It's awesome because it doesn't make any of the noise that yeah. the other pit crews make, so you can actually focus on what you're doing." And and he's he was basically asserting that it was more productive for him to do it that way. Yeah, I mean, there's there were competitive advantages that I think they didn't expect. I was doing it obviously because right. I didn't want to burn any any fuel. If I could use everything off of solar, why wouldn't we do that? Um, but there were definitely teams coming over and and asking us about it, and it wasn't because they wanted to like go green or reduce their carbon footprint. It was because it would be a competitive advantage in the pits to not have to yell over this loud diesel generator when you're trying to talk to each other. Um, so those are, you know, it's just about going out and doing it. Like I also drive my Tesla to and from all the races. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oftentimes I'll tell fans like what Tesla superchargers I'll be at so they can come and see the car. And and it's by doing that, I'm sort of dispelling, I think, the biggest myth that people have about electric cars, which is that. You know, they can't go on long road trips when Mm -hmm. that's just not true. There's so many superchargers out there. You can easily do road trips. I've driven all the way from New York to San Francisco with no problem finding Mm -hmm. charging. Um, So just by doing it and showing up and being at the track and having the electric car, I mean, just those little things of seeing it, that's planting a little seed in their head that, you know, maybe my next car will be electric or maybe I'll look into putting solar panels on my house or, you know, maybe instead of buying meat, I'm going to try that vegan stuff. It's, I think it's just all about leading by example. And that's what I'm trying to do in racing. And I understand why a lot of the other drivers, I think there's a lot of drivers that care about the issues I care about, but they don't know if their next ride is going to be you know, in the Pennzoil car right. or the Exxon or the Doritos car. car or the Shell car. Yeah. Right. right so they right. can't really show up with me at the BP oil spill or go to DC and lobby against oil because that could lose them a potential racing job. Mm-hmm. Whereas for me, I don't care if it loses me that racing job because I would rather not race than race a car promoting things that I don't care about. So your priorities I, are different, but you make yeah. it, you, you, you create, you make it doubly hard on yourself. And like, not only are you one of the few females, like trying to put a stamp into this world, you're in a position where you're going to have to say no to most of the sponsors that are knocking on your door, which means, you know, you may not get your car funded right. and you're not going to be able to race as much. So your yeah. ability to sort of make a living and, and really progress up the ranks of the sport is severely truncated as a result. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't been in a car for two years when I raced at Daytona in the vegan car and we did so well. Um, we were all the way up in fourth place um, in that race. And I was running sixth when Uh, another car took me out with 15 laps to go. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
I, I would, I just really feel strongly that like, I want to race, but I'm not going to sell my soul mm-hmm. so that I can race. It's not, it's not that important to me. Whereas the causes to me, these are the most important challenges that the human race has ever faced. I mean, we're, we're living through the sixth mass extinction of species We're you know, we're killing off animals, plants and animals at a rate that's like a thousand times faster than the normal natural background rate. Um, just ocean acidification, climate change, all of these things. This is, this is too big to ignore. I mean, you really, all of us have to try and become part of the solution. And that includes NASCAR fans Mm -hmm. and, you know, fans of every sport. We can't just be, you know, (laughs) we can't just be talking to our friends. We have to go out there and have those hard, they're harder conversations to have, right? You know, it's hard to sit and talk to somebody who, you know, coming to the table is on the other side of you and doesn't agree with what you're saying, but that's how you eventually change people. I think it's it's hard for most people to even break out of thinking, you know, they're having their thinking orient solely around what's in their best sort of immediate self-interest, mm-hmm. you know, in general, right? So basically, you know, you're asking people to think more broadly about the choices that they make, mm-hmm. which is new for a lot of people and perhaps, you know, slightly uncomfortable. Uh, and and for you as somebody who's had an eye on like maintaining your integrity in that world by not you know taking sponsor dollars from companies that would you know sort of undermine you know the integrity of the message that you're putting out there and 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 thus being able to not being able to race as often, despite that you still take some gruff from people who say well it's hypocritical for you to even be a race car driver how can you be an environmentalist when you're on this track and you're burning all this oil and you're in this sport that you know, built into the very fabric of which is the, you know, overconsumption of fossil fuels. So how do you kind of, you know, retort to that? Right. So, I mean, the sport of auto racing began when the second car got built. I mean, this is, (laughs) this is something that... That's probably something in auto racing say, people in auto racing say all the time, right? But I've never heard that before. I like that. I mean, it's never going to go away. Mm-hmm. People are always going to want to race cars. And certainly, you know, I've been I've been working with and talking with the people over at Electric GT. It's possible that I'll be racing a Tesla um, next year. Yeah, they're creating be, a whole series around this, right? Right, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a modified, highly modified version of a P100D Model S. So it's got like 1,100 pounds ripped out of it, and it'll just be, and it'll be the fastest GT car in the world. But that series is still being, you know, built right now. So it, it hasn't actually started yet. Mm-hmm. Um but with regards to the, you know, okay, so I burned, I, I, I burned like 30 gallons of gasoline at Daytona. Um, and that's all I've burned in the last. Is that all you burn when you race something like Daytona? Yeah. I mean, it's a 22 gallon fuel tank. I'm not running in the 500. So my race right, is only 200 shorter. miles I got you. Uh-huh. round. So it's like 80 laps. And um, we can go most of the race on that 22. You, you, you do do one pit stop for, for refueling to get some fuel. But yeah, it's probably around 30, maybe a little over 30 mm-hmm. gallons of gas. You know, in response, like I also haven't 
bought gasoline for my personal car since September 2013 because I've been driving my electric car and I've got solar panels on my roof. So I'm actually producing more solar every month than I use to to run my whole house and to charge up the Tesla. So I'm actually, you know, giving solar away essentially to my neighbors. Um, And so, but yeah, there's nothing I can do about the fuel you know, that's, that's burnt in the race car. I have to use the same fuel as everybody else. But, you know, so to, so to sort of address that in 2007, I started adopting an acre of rainforest for every race that I run to sort of offset that carbon footprint. But mm. if I didn't burn that 30 gallons, like if it wasn't me in that vegan powered race car at Daytona, I wouldn't take a race car off the grid. There'd just be another driver in that car with a different sponsor there's always going to be a full field mm-hmm. of race cars on the track. So it's not like if I quit racing and was like, okay, I'm just going to ride a bike instead now. Cause I don't want to, you know, ever burn it 30 gallons again. Um, first of all, I'm like losing my reach of millions of people, you know, over a million people are right. watching. You can that go Daytona speak at race. the veg fest and <laughs> preach to the echo chamber, or right. you can be on NBC sports and have millions of people, you know, right. see your car spin around that track, however many times and yep. potentially make an impact on people who are brand new to these ideas. Yeah. Daytona. I mean, we got incredible television coverage at at Daytona and and then commentators on TV, the NASCAR commentators even said, or the ARCA commentators even said, you know, I tried some of that food down there and it was pretty good. That oh, vegan did. food was pretty good. You know, they weren't was, like cracking jokes at your expense. No, no, they were totally praising and it. it was really awesome. I actually, my whole race team went vegan for that race oh, weekend. Wow. So all we cooked was, was vegan food. It was very funny because the first day, um, Kathy Venturini, who was, who was doing the cooking, she's, um, the wife of, uh, Bill Venturini. He sort of started Venturini Motorsports, which is the team that I race for. So she told everybody, you know, everybody knew, okay, we're going vegan for mm-hmm. a race day. It's Leilani's birthday. And I sort of looked at it as like a birthday gift to me that the whole team was going vegan. And, um, so one of the guys, one of the crew guys, I guess, walked into the hauler and was eating some of the vegan chicken wings and looked at her and he's like, all right, where's this vegan food? <laughs> and she uh-huh. kind of pointed in your at hand. his hand and she was like, yeah, you're, you're already eating the vegan uh-huh. food. And he's like, <laughs> he was like, nah, this is chicken. And she's like, no, it's not. That's plant protein. That's crazy. And he couldn't even tell. So um, there's been a lot of really positive reaction. And when I was putting my racing seat in, there's kind of funny moment. I was getting my racing seat fitted in the car and I'm kind of small. I'm five foot three. And so to fit properly in the car, you know, we have to have my seat correct it's very difficult Mm -hmm. to to get the seat correct and that's your office you know you're spending hours in there so you want to make sure you're comfortable so we're fitting my seat and we were late at the race shop most people had gone home but there were six of us in um in the race shop and of the six of us um it was just uh, crew members working on the race cars and then bill venturini who started um, the race team and one of the guys working on my car was vegan and another guy working on the car was vegetarian. Just independent of you. Uh, the second guy, the first guy that's vegan was independent of me. The other guy went vegetarian after I showed him uh-huh. all these, you know, different documentaries, and he became <laughs> okay. he became more aware. Um, and he's super into it, and he posts pictures of all his vegan meals and stuff. 
Um, but then I was kind of looking around. I was like, he's vegetarian. He's vegan. I'm vegan. That means that 50% of the people that are inside Ventrini Motorsports right now are vegan. And so I went over to Bill and their hat um, for the race team is just a big V standing uh-huh. for Venturini, which is their last name. And I was like, you know what? Half the people in your race shop are either vegetarian or vegan right now. I think that V might actually <laughs> also could funny. stand for for vegan. And he was laughing, but they've all they've all really started to substitute. You know, when they get ground beef, now they're getting the vegan ground mm-hmm. beef. And when I go to the race shop, you know, sometimes I'll bring like a vegan pizza or I'll stick some vegan ice cream in the fridge. And I just, you know, I'm not trying to be super forceful, but I'm nudging people yeah i get it (laughs) we're brought to you today by brain fm you know that thing when you have a bunch of intense work that you just have to do but the mind doesn't really want to do it you're telling it come on focus but it keeps getting distracted or agitated by nonsense and you go through this painful sort of mini war to rein it in to settle it down and just concentrate on the thing wouldn't it be great if there was something that would ease or eliminate this process i don't know like something you put in your brain through your ears that would be great and the good news is that it does exist It's called Brain.fm, which is this sonic platform that leverages science to create tunes specifically crafted to optimize brain performance for a specific task. Tunes that contain patterns that shift your brain state with something even more effective than binaural beats called neural entrainment so that you can more easily focus on that thing or lure you into the sleep that persistently eludes you. Personally, I notice it the most when I sit down to write. Typically, this experience floods me with anxiety and a near-lethal dose of the big R resistance that Stephen Pressfield talks about. But now, I pop on the headphones, I dial up brain.fm, click the focus feature, and the process becomes, I mean, look, writing is still hard, but now it really is so much easier to get into that state of flow and stay there. So if you're ready to unlock your focus and productivity, I've got a special offer just for you. I asked them to give my listeners 30 days free and you can get it at brain.fm slash richroll. I bet you'll love it just as much as I do. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But No longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm going to tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, 
And it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own N.A. beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem. A problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. You're as out there and as outspoken as anybody on all of these issues. Like you don't pull punches. You're not afraid to get controversial and mix things up. And we're going to get into all that kind of stuff. So it's not like you're a, a sheepish, you know, advocate for these ideas that are so important to you. Yeah, I guess when you're putting it on the hood of your race car, it's not <laughs> yeah, very subtle. You're not hiding, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's like you're, I mean, it's, I would say a Trojan horse, but that implies that you're kind of hiding. You know, it's like you're not hiding at all. You're just blazing, you know, full guns into a world that is traditionally, you know, not receptive to these kinds of ideas. So there's a boldness to that that I appreciate. I, think I mean, it's- what is the, you know... We, we know the sort of stereotype of the typical NASCAR fan or, you know, I've never been to a NASCAR race um, or kind of what that world is all about. But, you know, what is the, you know, what is the reality that, that you see like on a, in your experience of 
doing this for however long you've been doing this for like 15, 16 years, right? Yeah. So the, the activism, when I actively started to use my voice to talk about like the environment and really bring causes into it was around 2006. In the beginning of my career as a woman, like I was just trying to be accepted. I wanted so badly to, you know, be embraced by the racing community, right. which and that's enough is, I mean, it just, I mean, at, at some point I kind of just realized, you know what, I'm, I'm never going to fit in. Like, why am I trying to get them to accept me? Like, I'm never, I'm never going to fit in. Like when you're the only girl or one of the very few girls, how many in, are there? Well, there's Danica Patrick, who's on the top right. level of NASCAR. Um, I don't think there's any women in NASCAR Xfinity series. That's the series um, that you race. So maybe, maybe no, no. I'm in ARCA, Arca. so I'm okay. one level. I'm I'm what you would race before you go to Xfinity. I think there's mm -hmm. one girl that races in NASCAR Craftsman trucks, but yeah. So I mean, at my race at Daytona, I was the only girl in the ARCA race, and Danica was, I think, the she was the only girl, obviously, in the Cup series, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure if there was a girl in the NASCAR truck series. There might, I think there might be a girl running in that still. So we're, we, yeah, we I mean, we're definitely like the odd ones out. So and do you guys like hang and like talk? Well, we're you, all in different series. So you're so not, not even really. like, yeah, because you mean, have this idea you get together and have like girls night and like complain <laughs> no, about. Like, <laughs> I know Danica and we've, we, you know, we, we have a friendly relationship. We've been on campaigns together in the past. And so we have a good relationship, but like, yeah, I don't see her all the time mm -hmm. or anything like that. It's if we saw each other at the track, we definitely say hello. And, um, it's, you know, I'm always pulling for other girls to do well because we're, there are so few of us. Um, but yeah, at some point I realized, I think 2006 is when an inconvenient truth came out and I, you know, my degree is in biology, specializing in ecology, behavior and evolution. So I was already very environmental long ago. Um, but that movie coming out was when I really felt like, you know, it's not enough for me to just talk to my friends about this and my family, you know, I, I should use like racing to start talking about this. So that's when I started you know, an area on my website that was actively reaching out to the race fans. And the response was really bad at first. You know, mm. people were angry. Don't bring your um, politics into the race drive. Oh, yeah. I mean, people, I remember seeing tons of traffic coming to my website from a NASCAR forum. And I was like, where, what, what is going on? And I went to look and it was a thread that was essentially calling me all kinds of names, throwing me under the bus because I had said something about an inconvenient truth as a movie that everybody should see and they were just trashing me and this this driver's an idiot and she's brainwashed by Al Gore and global warming is a farce and all this ridiculous <laughs> arguments but uh -huh. then so by the time I found it the thread was many pages long so then one of the people on the forum said well have you actually seen the movie that she's talking about because it's a little weird if you're so mad at this girl for promoting this movie if you haven't even actually watched it. Have you watched it? And then the discussion sort of left trashing me, and then it became a discussion about Al Gore and the film. And then by the time the end of the I got to the end of the thread, people were posting graphs of the parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And this was on a NASCAR forum where right. normally people are only talking about racing and what happened in the race and what driver did what. And that was sort of like a moment where 
the hair on the back of my neck kind of stood up and I immediately was totally over all of the insults that they had flung at me. Yeah, you won. You stimulated conversation in a, in a realm in which that would have never happened ordinarily. Right. It, it was a... It transcended your personality. Your, your personality was the catalyst. You, you yeah. sort of lit the spark, but then it became about the issue. That then became like my number one focus was like, okay, I'm just going to get them to start talking about this stuff. Because I guarantee you people that were arguing on that thread, I guarantee you some of them then went and watched the movie because they Mm -hmm. were having such a big fight about it. Um, So it was negative back then, but that's 2006. I mean, that was really in the very beginning of people learning about climate change, especially the mainstream Um, But now it's really positive. I mean, in 2010, I ran a clean energy car um, that the goal of the car was to raise awareness about changing legislation. And it was a partnership with all these veterans that were fighting for clean energy on Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a big tent display like we did with the vegan car. And we were, you know, talking to people about clean energy. And we had 30,000 people come through our tent and give us their emails and say, I want to be kept up to date about these clean energy issues um, in Washington, D.C. And that was over the course of the race weekend, it was 30,000, you know, emails we had gotten. And, you know, there's probably 100,000 people at the racetrack. So we got almost a third of the people that were there. And that was 2010. So now fast forward, I've had the Blackfish car, I've had the Cove car, lots of people when they saw the Cove. I mean, I don't think there's anybody that can watch the Mm -hmm. Cove and not be deeply affected by that. Yeah, Oscar winning documentary. Fantastic. And then Blackfish, you know, on the heels of that. Yeah. Which caused, you know, such a, you know, such a... It made such a, a an impact culturally. I mean, everybody was talking about that movie. Yeah, you can you can actually see. I was just talking about this last night. You can see the day that if you zoom out of the SeaWorld, um, look at the value of SeaWorld stock. You can see the day that Blackfish aired on CNN for the first time because they lost like three billion dollars of market share the very next day. Mm-hmm. So the the stock was up here and it just drops out of the sky and it's never recovered. It's it's been down there ever since. And I just I think the power of social media and you know like what happened with United. Right. Um, Ten years ago, that guy could have gotten dragged off the airplane and, and none Nobody of us would have known. known. Yeah, and you have CEOs that are operating in an old paradigm where they don't understand the the way in which you need to communicate in this day and age in order to you know first avoid those incidents from happening but then to initiate an appropriate response that's going to rehabilitate the damage that's caused i mean you know right. that guy just dug his grave in the way that that company responded to that situation right i i really love so i know social media can have there can be bad things about it, right? Like when the vegan car got announced, I mean, I was getting death threats. I was having people wow. tell me, you know, I hope you wreck and I hope you die at Daytona. You know, it's just Is that coming like, in on Twitter or those on like NASCAR Twitter, forums? Twitter, no, Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. Um, just, I mean- A lot, to, of, a lot to, of frogs and MAGA people. Un- unbelievable. And and also the Blackfish. Um, when I left the flowers for Tillicum, at um, SeaWorld when Tillicum, the orca from Blackfish died, like someone even left a message on my, I think this was on Instagram, but he was like, they shouldn't have issued you a trespassing 
like uh fine they should have you should have been shot <laughs> like oh just God. ridiculous like people people are so very defensive especially i think actually the vegan car probably touched more um what is the nerve that's getting that's getting pinched though you know what i mean it's like the the reaction is so strong and and uh and violent yeah. So what is it that's being triggered in people that's creating that kind of a response? Because I can't imagine that they, it's not like they're shareholders in SeaWorld or, you know, what is it that they're right. protecting? I think, I mean, this is just my theory, but I feel like it's, they're feeling defensive because they know they're on the wrong side. They know we're right. They know that eating animals hurts the planet clearly it hurts billions of animals they know it's not healthy and by being vegan we're sort of throwing in their face you're doing it wrong and and i know people there is a sort of like you oh you're not supposed to judge people you shouldn't be judgmental but i mean how can how can you not i i i try to not judge if somebody doesn't know the facts but when somebody actually knows the hurt, that the cruelty, the awfulness of factory farming and the meat and dairy industry, when they know how much pollution is happening, how much deforestation, how the oceans are acidifying and more greenhouse gas emissions come from raising animals for food in the entire transportation sector, um, when they know all these things and they still continue on with their normal way of eating i i don't get it like i don't understand how somebody can see human, it and then like human behavior is somehow. you know is a black box in many ways and i think it's very difficult for people to change habits that they have adhered to their entire life you know it's 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 hard and i think you know somebody who is on the receiving end of all of that information and has processed it and still doesn't change their behavior is living in this, you know, sort of dichotomous world where they're, you know, I'm sure, you, look, nobody is in support, unless you own a factory farm, you're not in support of factory farming. There's, there's nobody's like s supporting like the slaughter of all these, you know, it's like, we all know it's terrible, right. but we just file it into the, this, you know, dark compartment in the back of our brains yeah. and try to carry on. And for some people, that becomes untenable and other people are able to compartmentalize it. But when yeah. you bring it up, they don't want to look at it because they they right. know on some level, however conscious or unconscious, that their actions are not in alignment with, you know, their core values of their higher self. Right. Uh, and that gets poked, you know, and that's uncomfortable. So it's it's not surprising, I suppose, that, uh, you know, a natural human reaction would be to react to like lash out against that because, right. you know, it's not fun to look at your own shit. Mm -hmm. The other thing that really, really has been bugging me lately is um, seeing animal rescue groups, like groups that are uh, rescuing cats and dogs that then are serving meat at their events. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, so you're, you want to help these animals, but these ones, it's okay for you to be cooking up. I just, I, I, I can't it's a understand. Weird thing. We, humans are like, weird that way. Why do we yeah. knit sweaters for one species and then the other species, it's like, it's just treated like it has no feelings. It's, it's 
so weird to me. But as an advocate or as somebody who's interested in like sort of figuring out the best way to carry a message that's going to provoke the most change, Mm -hmm. it's an interesting discussion to have because you have a choice. You can either attack those people and say, how could you do this, but not this? Mm -hmm. Or you can say, this is amazing that you're saving these dogs and Mm -hmm. perhaps find a more gentle way to say, you know, there's other things we can look at too. This is a great thing to be doing. Let's expand on it. And right. look at other areas that need redress, you know, and what is which which strategy is going to be more likely to get somebody to kind of move in, in, in a positive direction. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a difficult it's a difficult question. I don't know the answer of how to best be effective. And I for sure, you know, I'm not always um, I can be pretty blunt. So just i think it was just yesterday somebody asked me it was actually a nascar person um asked me on twitter uh do we still do eggs for easter or is this gross now what do you do and then asked me you know tagged me in the tweet and said what what do you do what's what, what is your solution and i wrote back and i just said you know in my humble opinion it's like coloring uh, coloring and then eating chickens, menstrual cycles slash periods is pretty gross. <laughs> so, and then I linked I, to like, <laughs> yeah, I would have answered it differently, but go ahead. So then I linked to, um, I found a ceramic egg. That's like a dyeable egg. That's ceramic. That is like a vegan solution. Uh-huh. If you want to dye eggs with your kids, but so many of the people that responded were like, and I'll never be able to look at an egg the same way ever again. But it's really effective, right? It sort of shocks people at first, but then they think about it and they're like, geez, that is a chicken's period. I didn't realize that's what I've been eating for breakfast all these years. Yeah, it's weird when you've been looking at something in a certain way your entire life and there's another perspective on it that's never been raised. You know, sometimes that doesn't work, but sometimes it's effective. Yeah, I think it's, I've found it to be really effective. That, that one especially, because people just, I mean, it it really grosses them out. <laughs> so I think I've stopped a lot of people from eating eggs by saying that. <laughs> well, let's let's track it back a little bit. Like, I'm interested in, you know, how you grew up and, and, you know, what inspired you to get into racing in the first place, because it wasn't part of your family. It's not like you grew up in a family no. of race car drivers. I mean, you, you know, grew up in Minnesota and then you studied biology at, in, at UC San Diego. Like, yeah. you know, racing wasn't part of the, you know, the young girl's dream for you, right? Right. It was not a part of the plan at all. Um, I started a bucket list in high school, um, which some people think is morbid. They're like, why bucket lists are for people when you're getting old, you know, things you want to do before you die. But I started mine in high school. And one of the things on my bucket list was to drive a race car because I was always getting in trouble for speeding and I loved speed and I just wanted to feel what it would feel like to drive a car to its limit and to not get in trouble for it, right? So you were getting speeding tickets in high school? I was getting, getting a were lot you of like, Were you getting in trouble? In the high, what kind of kid were you? Yeah, I, I mean, the first year that I had my license, I got a letter from the state of Arizona saying that I was a danger to society because <laughs> I had received an excessive number of speeding tickets and I had to go to like a class. How many about, did you get? 
I don't remember how many I got, but it was enough to, you know, I had to go to the school in order, the, the driving school in order to keep my license. So I had gotten quite a few and I don't know, I just love speed. I love speed and I have a little bit of an adrenaline addiction, I think. Like I like jumping, I, I've gone skydiving a few times and paragliding and I did bungee jumping, which I'm scared of heights. I don't think I'll ever do it again because it was pretty scary. I did that twice. But I just like, I don't know, I like things that like get my blood pumping. And so speed, uh, heights I don't like, but speed I like. And um, so it was on my bucket list and I went to a, I'd saved up my money and I went to a racing school um, and I was fast. I was actually a second quicker. So this than was, the how old were you then? So this was college years. So uh-huh. this is 2000. It was, I want to say it was like October of 2000. And this is, and is this before or after you were working as a body double for Catherine Zeta-Jones? This was after I actually <laughs> left one of the movies I was working for her on. I left early to go to the racing school. Uh-huh. I left like a couple days before we wrapped and she was like, what is this? I hear about you driving race cars. So she, she was scared I was going to get hurt. How long? did you work Um, with her i worked with her on the first movie was america no the first movie was traffic Mm -hmm. um and then i did that must have been a cool experience yeah it was great i know the writer on that movie traffic movie america's sweethearts was the comedy um which was really fun we shot that in vegas and then they asked me to go do oceans what was it oceans 12 that she was in one of the oceans movies um, and unfortunately I, I had my first race scheduled. So it, I just, I was trying to build this racing career. And, um, so I, I stopped do doing it. all that stuff. I but just you started had this, pouring everything you sort into of had racing. this little, you know, mini Hollywood career going on for a minute. And then you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to go learn how to race cars. Was it like, this is just going to be a fun thing. Cause it's on my bucket list. Or were you like, I want to do this seriously? No, no, it was totally a bucket list thing. So I had always wanted to race and, you know, I didn't want to act or anything. I was, I was, I was doing the doubling work to like pay my bills, to pay my rent. Um, You know, and it was definitely money that I made working on those films that, that allowed me to go to the racing schools because those are not cheap either. Um, But I didn't think I was ever going to do it again. Yeah. I mean, I thought I was going to like have that experience and check it off my list, like mm-hmm. the bungee jump and never do it again. But, but then I was fast and the, um, there was a race team owner, sort of like a regional level NASCAR owner that was there at the track. And he came over to me and he was at first, he was just kind of like, who, who are you here with? And I said, you know, nobody, I'm just here by myself. And he's like, that's really strange because usually when we have women drivers, you know, come through the school, they've been like dragged by their husbands or their boyfriends and they don't really want to be here. I was like, no, no, I've always wanted to race. And um, and then he just kind of said, you know, normally I would never encourage somebody to get into racing because it is so expensive and it's just, you know, it's a very tough sport. Um, but you were really fast and you were the fastest car on the track. And um, what is it like? Sorry to interrupt, but like I'm interested in in, you know, what makes a great driver like or somebody who shows talent at an, like obviously this guy saw something in you you know a diamond in the rough or whatever but like what is it that he was able to see i mean there's going like to me not knowing anything about racing it's like all right well you know you you can go as fast as the car can go right so what is it that the driver is doing or what demonstration of talent distinguishes somebody who's you know going to just be like everybody else versus somebody who really understands like how to do this properly I mean, I honestly think so. I mean, for me, obviously that day I hadn't had 
seat time. That was my first day in a race car. So I didn't really know what I was doing, but I wasn't afraid of speed and I was able mm-hmm. to go into the corners, you know, fast. And I wasn't afraid to like sort of push the car. And so I think he just saw that. And then, and then he kind of explained that the reason, you know, I'd normally never encourage somebody to get into racing, but because you're a woman and there's so few women in our sport, you know, I really think you should pursue this because you showed some talent today and there's not very many women out mm-hmm. there. So maybe you could find sponsorship, even though you don't have your own money to race. Um, Cause I immediately explained, I was like, Oh, I don't have the kind of money it takes to drive race cars on the weekend. Like I'm not rich. And um, he said, you might be able to find sponsors. Um, but then after that, I really do believe it's, it's, you know, spending time in the race car. I mean, if you have the, the basics, right? You're not afraid of speed. You're able to go into corners fast. You're not afraid of like losing control of the car, getting it to that edge where you're comfortable with it, almost Mm -hmm. losing control. Then you've got the basics. And then it's really just getting seat time and being in the race car. And that, you know, the problem with that is that is really expensive because every time you drive a race car, there's a possibility that you wreck it. Um, it's expensive to get the cars on the track. Um, really for, for the Arca series, like when I ran Daytona, we had, you know, practice session the month before where we spend like three days turning laps, but at Talladega, there's no test sessions anymore. So, and you hadn't raced in two years. So like, that's like a long period of time without being behind the wheel of a car like that. Right. Like, so, I mean, it's a whole other tangent, but, you know, I'd love to hear like how you prepare for a race like that when, you know, it's like if you're a runner, you go out and run. If you're, you know, whatever you, whatever you do as an athlete, that's what you train and practice every day. But, you know, race car driving, you You can't can't. get in the car. So, you know, how do you, you know, we can talk about that in a minute. I don't want to get distracted. So go ahead. So, so wait, uh, do you want to talk about the the preparation or? No, let's talk about what we were talking about before. Okay. <laughs> I'm all, so what, now what we're all confused. Oh, no, we're talking just, about like how, what he said to me. Yeah. Like how you got and, your career on its feet. Right. So, so it was really just, I mean, it was that 10 minute conversation with this stranger that I didn't know uh, that totally changed the course of my life because that happened on a weekend. And then that following Monday, I went to, I started to approach sports marketing companies and I said, look, you know, I have no racing experience, but I showed some talent and this race team owner believed in what I did. And And you were just cold calling? Yeah, yeah. I just approached sports marketing companies. And then one company was like, yeah, this is pretty cool. We'll try it. We don't have any other race car drivers. They were handling like snowboarders and surfers and skaters. And they were like, this is really cool. It's not something we normally do, but we'll try it. And so we started looking for sponsors and it took us nine months to find the first sponsorship. And at that time, it was just to run this little short track in San Diego. It was called Cajon Speedway. It's gone now. Um, And I needed, I think, $1,500 a race to run. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, now when I go out and look, it's, you know, $100,000. Or in the case of the vegan car with the display and the food, it's $200,000. So it gets a lot more expensive. But, of course, you're reaching many more people. Um, So I started racing. um, In my very first race, I fought for the lead. um, And... I was very just first race. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's very crazy. first race. And actually the guy that I was racing against, we were like door to door, door to door. He came over to me after the race and he shook my hand and he said, you know, I have to admit like when you showed up here, I was kind of skeptical and you know, there's not very many girls at the track, but he was like, you were the most fun to race. Like I was so much faster than everybody else, but you were actually the only person that I was like really having to, to race. Yeah, yeah. And, because, that, and, and that guy's probably been racing for years and years and years. 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know like how long he had been out there, but he was basically like, thanks for making racing fun again. Cause uh-huh. I didn't have anybody to race out there. And like, you know, you were actually as quick as me and that was really fun. So that must've left and you thinking like, Oh, I, I, I am like pretty good at this. Like there, there could be a thing here. Yeah. I knew that like, okay, I'm showing promise that I was able to run up front and then, um, and then I ran a second race in Texas. So I only got sponsorship. That first sponsorship was like $3,000. It was enough to go to two mm. races and I was just hooked. And I right then and there decided, you know what, this is this, I want to chase this. Like, I know this doesn't make sense. And my family certainly, and my friends, I think thought I had lost my mind because here I'd gone to school in science and biology and then all of a sudden i'm like i'm gonna move to north carolina and be a nascar driver (laughs) (laughs) and i think they were like what what happened to her well on some (laughs) level your parents you know you're the you're you were the menace to society in high school right for speeding all the time so it couldn't have come as that big of a shock it was just such a different path from the one that i had been on yeah Um, i get it but, and it didn't actually make sense to me either. So I packed up, I moved to North Carolina, packed up my little, I had a Volkswagen GTI, put all my stuff in my car, got my helmet. I got to North Carolina, didn't know a single person. I didn't have a job. Um, I had no race car, no sponsor, no race team. I and just is, had my helmet. Like what year is this? <laughs> this is 2002. That's ah, not that long ago. And then I just started, you know, trying to get in a race car whenever I could. Crappy race cars, slow race cars, race cars that, you know, were so low on, the teams were so low on budget that we couldn't even afford to buy new tires for the race. We'd be using hand-me-downs from you know, other big teams that had money that didn't want to use, use tires. Mm -hmm. And, um, you have to get into, you know, when you don't have money and you're coming into the sport, you have to get into just every car you can just to get the experience. But now I've gotten to the point where, you know, like uh, 2007, I really got a taste of being in a fast car. I was in open wheel cars. I did a a couple of races over in Indy pro series and I was with a fast team, like, you know, when we unloaded, I expected to be in the top five. And once you get a taste of that, of like running up front and being in contention to win the race, now I'm at the stage where I never want to go back to running with a car that I don't have a shot to win at. Mm-hmm. So I knew at Daytona when I unloaded, you know, I'm with a good team. Venturini is a fantastic team. And I knew like I have a shot to win this race. I could be the first woman to win an ARCA race. Um, and I'll have another shot at Talladega in the vegan car. How amazing would it be if the first win for a woman in a, in an ARCA car in history yeah. is in the vegan powered car? Cause that God damn will it. Go not everywhere. only is she a woman, she's <laughs> vegan too. Can't we just get these one at a time? No. When I first started talking about this vegan car, it's funny. I did an interview with a like a NASCAR news site and they wrote a story and in the story I was saying like I'm not trying to make people like go vegan cold turkey I'm just saying like try meatless Mondays give it a shot try some of these vegan meats I'm not gonna like show up at the racetrack and like take Mm -hmm. everybody's meat away and what did they do now the headline was normal and the article used all my real quotes but then when they like sent it out on social media the title was something like leilani munter wants to take away nascar's barbecue (laughs) (laughs) yeah the menacing evil leilani is you know (laughs) out to get you and take away what you love the most like no that's 
not what I. She's going to climb down your chimney and steal your Christmas presents too. Yeah, it was pretty funny. They're like, "Oh, first she's trying to get us all to drive electric cars, and now she's taking away my meat too." Right, (laughs) it's kind of funny. So, what was the first like big break? Was there one, or was it just a natural progression of getting better and getting faster? Um, I feel like my first big break was probably when I moved over into the open wheel cars in 2007, Mm because it was the first time. You know, I just, I didn't have enough funding to get into a great race car, um, you know, like a top winning car before then. And um, when I went over into Indy Pro Series, I only had sponsorship for two races, um, but like I qualified fifth for my first race. And that's another situation we were talking about, like not being able to practice. I had to turn, you know, I think a hundred laps in front of the IndyCar officials to get my license. Mm. Um, and I did really well and I got my license. And there was another driver there, it's funny, there's another driver there that had tons of money, um, but they wouldn't give him his license because he was so far off the pace and he was all over the track. And so, you, you know, they don't give the, the IndyCar licenses out right. <laughs> to just anybody. You have to actually show that you're capable. And, what, and why didn't you, maybe this is a naive question, but um, why didn't you stay in open wheel and like pursue that indie yeah, path? I, I loved driving the open wheel cars. There were two things that were working against us there. One, they had TV time, but it was uh, hardly anybody watched the races. The, the amount of people that were tuning in was like 50,000 people versus you know, Arca, which had, you know, a million people. So and unless the you pursue it, the same. Oh, it's the same. I would have thought it would have been more actually for those no. cars. So the indie pro series is about a hundred, it was about a hundred thousand uh-huh. a race. So it's about the same as Arca. And so unless you find a, a company that has a CEO that just loves open wheel racing, like they like formula one, they like indie car and they don't care that there's less people watching. They think the cars are cooler and it's not about the numbers, it's about having a cool indie car. Um, it's hard to sort of argue the case for that series when, when people can say, well, why right. wouldn't we just take that money and run ARCA and have million, a million viewers instead of... Unless you just, pursue it to Formula One in Europe, right? Where it's a whole different thing. Yeah, it's just, you know, I my first race was in a stock car and that was what I'd spent most of my time in. And really in the United States, you know, that's... That's the king of, right. of racing. The the only race, I mean, not certainly people watch IndyCar, but the but the one race everybody watches is like the Indy 500. But then if you look at the numbers on the other races, it, it drops significantly. Well, so it's, it's just harder. It was harder for me to actually find sponsors. And then they lost their television package. Mm-hmm. So then even the small amount of viewers that we had was gone. And so then I was just like, when I found that out, I was like, and I can't, how can I possibly sell this now to a, to a company? Um, and so that's when I came back to stock cars and you know, I don't know how long I'll be racing. I mean, I, this, this race in the vegan powered car at Talladega could be my last race because that's all I have funding for right Mm -hmm. now. So it's, I always have this sort of underlying, like, Every time I show up, I'm like at Daytona. I only had sponsorship for Daytona. I thought Daytona might be my last race, but then here I was, you know, running in the top five. Mm-hmm. And I remember pulling into the garage and being like, "I'm not ready to walk away from the sport yet. Like right. I've still got, I've, I've still got it. I've still got something to prove. I can still drive a race car and I could still win." Um, but so if I'll you get, 
that Sorry, shot at, I'll get that shot at Talladega, yeah. but, but after that, yeah, I mean, there's no other races on my schedule. So I just, I'm always like sort of thinking I could be retired at any point. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. If you didn't have this environmental uh, vegan advocacy aspect to what you do, I would imagine that you could potentially gather the sponsors so that you could be racing every weekend, right? Like Landon's racing all the time. He's on a team. That's the way, you know, most of these guys operate. Yeah. I've walked away from- You do like one year contracts or I don't know how it works, but it's a season, right? It's not just a race by race thing. I've walked away from two sponsorships that were full rides, like millions of dollars. Um, because I just, the companies did not align with what, what I believed in. And I, I mean, the, the marketing people just thought I was crazy. They Mm. were like, you're kidding me, right? Like you don't have a ride and you're turning down like a multi-million dollar deal because you don't like what the company does in this one little thing. And I was just like, yes, I can't. I mean, I can't so everyone, do that. I don't yeah, feel good sports, about it. sports, like you're them. insane, right? Yeah. And maybe it was. I mean, I'd probably be a lot further higher up the sport had I taken that deal. Um, and then there was another There was another sponsor that was um, a big sponsor. And interestingly enough, they weren't, they themselves weren't doing anything wrong. But when I got the phone call from the marketing person, they said, they need you. They love your lifestyle. They love that you're so passionate about the environment. They think that's great. Um, 
but the CEO has like some concerns about how much you're speaking out against big oil. I had just gotten back from the BP oil spill from mm-hmm. like my second trip to the BP oil spill. And so they were essentially asking me saying like, you can be environmental, but like, you're going to have to dial back on like the oil <laughs> thing. And I, yeah. so then I said no to that one too, but even uh, though that company was not actually doing anything that was bad to the environment, well, I would have said CEO yes. is buddies with this C plays golf with the, you know, who knows? They never told me right. the backstory of it, but so there's, yeah, I mean, sometimes I wonder like, Oh, what would have happened if I had actually had a chance to race full time and be in a car every weekend? Like, yeah, especially after Daytona where, you know, I raced my way all the way up to fourth place and I'm running in the top five, like at the end of the race. And you hadn't I, raced in two years. Yeah. And I was thinking, I mean, I, I had a bunch of people say that like, oh my God, you haven't been in a race car in two years and you could have won that race. Like how good would you be if you were out there every weekend? And I feel like I could be really good and I feel like I could win a race, but I just don't have the sponsorship to do that. You gotta so. get your buddy Elon Musk on board to write that check. Well, that doesn't make any sense though, because Tesla is yeah, I know. not. It yeah, I know. I, I, he could create some shell company and have it funnel to you through some, you know, overseas whatever. So, well, I hope one day. I mean, I really hope that that Tesla series that's starting up in Europe that's cool. is going to be successful. They well, just actually unveiled the um, the schedule. And there's no races in the U.S. yet. It's all overseas. Um, But I think that has the potential to do really well. There is already an open wheel electric series called Formula Mm -hmm. E. Right. Um, But I think this Tesla series, you know, the the Model S's are just such a beautiful car. I think they're just gorgeous. So in that, does everybody race a Tesla? Or you can't have some other kind of electric car i mean i think eventually they could open up to other electric cars but right now the only cars that can possibly go that distance at that speed are tesla so they'll all be p100ds and they'll be they're modified they're beautiful i'll show you a picture of it aren't there some new companies coming up though i think at ces they unveiled some other kind of electric supercar i don't know yeah i mean there's always other ones in the mix but it's really about whether or not they can get to the actual production Mm -hmm. right Right. so there's lots of people Right. Yeah, there's I lots gotcha. of people unveiling like really cool, beautiful, and there's one of them. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different thing for them to be able to take that into production and create a hundred thousand of them right. in a year or, or whatever. Create a company so. that's now more valuable than Ford and GM. Yeah, and it's GM? the most valuable the American car company yeah. in the world. That's crazy. I I just totally believe in that company. I remember taking my first tour of the Tesla factory and. I I was just totally blown away and like, you know, again, like the hair on the back of my neck stood up and I thought, wow, this is really something very special is happening in this building. And, you know, I I just love my car. I haven't haven't bought gasoline since September 2013. I've never seen, I have friends that have Teslas and I have friends that are Tesla fanatics, but I've never seen like an ambassador (laughs) of a product (laughs) Be so passionate as you are about your Tesla, like just based on social media. I just love the car and um, it's so fun to drive. Like, you know, you know why I loved it so much, I think, was that it was the first car that existed in the world that I could have all the things that I wanted as a race car driver, the speed, the handling, the sexiness of the look of the car 
and it not burn any gas because mm -hmm. the other choices just weren't checks sexy. every box it's like per it's like a perfect car in every category safety too right you know the technology it's unbelievable and it's beautiful like i you know i've had that car for so many years but i still every time i park it you know i kind of glance back at him yeah. like oh she's so pretty <laughs> so is the tesla that you have the tesla that was in racing to extinction no that's a that was like one. a prototype just for the movie right with the crazy no. paint on it and the projector and the whole thing so that was actually we bought it um ops bought that car just as a normal stock p85 plus um tesla and then I drove it off the lot and I took it over to Obscura in San Francisco and they immediately just started ripping the interior out of the car. <laughs> I was so just... explain what Obscura is. So Obscura is the company. So if you've seen Racing Extinction at the end of the movie, we do all these really incredible projection events. And Obscura is the company that the digital like art company that can light up these huge buildings. So it's not just my car doing projections. Certainly I use the Tesla in Racing Extinction. So I'll just explain the Tesla quickly for people who haven't seen Racing Extinction. Um, the car I drive in Racing Extinction is this really sort of cool James Bond version of a Tesla. So um, it has a 15,000 lumen projection system that comes out of the back of the Tesla. So I could project you know, from a thousand feet away images that were, you know, a hundred feet high um, or more. And um, it also had an amazing camera that came out of the front of the car. They call it the frunk, meaning front trunk. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a high def uh, camera that allows, it's a FLIR camera. So it allows you to see uh, carbon dioxide and methane. It's got a really special color filter on it. So it essentially makes you know, the pollution that we're putting in the air visible. visible to the eye. And I think if, you know, I wish pollution was visible because if we could see those gases, certainly we would not be having all these problems. It's that we can't see it. And so in the film, we do some really cool stuff where um, like we were in New York and I had the projector out of the back of the Tesla, but I was also running the high def Lear out of the front and I was filming like an SUV sitting at a stoplight. And then I was live projecting the image that we were shooting onto the side of a building. So, you know, like a 15 story high image. So the guy in the car that was driving this SUV, you know, is looking up at the building and seeing himself <laughs> and seeing like the emissions coming out of the back right. of his car. It's, it's very, very powerful mm -hmm. imagery. And then, yeah, the, the other thing the car had on it was this really cool, um, it's called electroluminescent paint. And it essentially allowed the car to change colors to the car kind of glowed and we could change the design on it. Um, it was kind of inspired by like bioluminescent ocean creatures. And we actually, they didn't really explain this in the movie because you just run out of time when you're editing down to 90 minutes. But um, the purpose of that was actually so that when I was doing projections in places where I didn't have permission, like, you know, oil refineries or like the Koch brothers, buildings um that i could sort of hide in plain sight so i would have the the lights on when i was doing the projecting so when they were calling the police or you know security to come after us they're describing a glowing car with like bright blue you know lights on it and this big projector out the back and then in just the course you know of like a minute i can 
turn everything. I mean, the, the paint is an immediate, like it's literally, I hit a button and the car just goes gray. So that's immediate. And then, you know, just pulling in the Lower projector. And so then they drive right past me. Yeah. Yeah. Cause becomes, they're looking for right. a glowing car and right, right, right. I just totally blend in with the background after that. Some so, of the, the images, the imagery that came out of that, like experiment was is just mind blowing. I mean, there were a lot of viral moments of that with the the projection yeah. of the whale and you know the Empire State Building and things that you guys did is just yeah. really powerful and beautiful. And weren't you like projecting like statistics on the side of corporate headquarters? <laughs> you know, were yeah. less than flattering. <laughs> yeah, we were. I think we projected onto one of the. It's, it was like at the David Koch Theater, and we were projecting about how, you know, burning fossil fuels is acidifying our oceans. We tried to project, um, you know, images that were symbolic to the buildings that we were sort of tagging. And it's, you know, we're not doing any harm. It's not a permanent thing. It's just we're, we're projecting photons onto your building, and then it's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were at a Shell Oil refinery, and we projected, you know, the Shell oil logo and then it turned into a real shell and then we showed the you know what happens to the shell when it's sitting in an ocean that is becoming you know drastically more and more every day more acidified and i was just actually talking to our director luis sohoyas today and we were talking about how the great barrier reef has it's going through its second mass bleaching so it already had like 90 percent of the reef had bleached Mm -hmm. and they're going through another mass bleaching. And I just, I don't, I mean, that's like the largest living structure on earth. And I'm so glad I went to see it. Um, I went to Australia actually for a vegan festival, the Adelaide Vegan Festival. And I went early and I went to go scuba diving. My husband and I went scuba diving in the very Southern tip of the Great Barrier Reef, which is still beautiful. It hasn't, it hasn't had any of the damage yet. Um, And I almost, it was, it was so beautiful, but at the same time, I felt like I was like saying goodbye to it, you know. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's a tenuous time, you know. We really are butting up against this crazy tipping point, and you know, we need as many people to be as educated as possible to avert the mm. horrific disaster that we're on the precipice of self-creating. That's awful. It's just it's overwhelmingly depressing sometimes to know all these things like i can i can kind of understand why some people tune it out they they don't want to know because it is you know it is hard to like see all this bad news all the time it's awful to to think oh all these beautiful things that we're seeing these beautiful creatures and we're losing all of it we're killing it all off and it's it's hard to care about something that's not in your face you know it's like we don't see the factory farms and you know the ocean is underwater so it's like it's not part of your daily experience so it's easy to avoid confronting it right i think but you got involved in racing extinction because you were you you were a volunteer on the cove right so you began like you were did you work out like for the organization that produced that or were you actually working on the movie so no i didn't work on the cove at all i saw the cove and was just completely blown away by it and the first words out of my mouth when i was finally able to talk because it's a very emotional movie 
um, was I looked at my husband and I said, we're going to Japan and we're going to help Rick O'Berry end this. Oh, so you just, you volunteered for the organization after so seeing the movie. We, well, it's actually two different organizations. So I started volunteering for Rick O'Berry's dolphin project. So Rick mm. is the activist. He's the one that featured in the movie. Yeah. yeah. That Louis follows over to Taiji and he teaches Louis all about what's going on. And Louis is the filmmaker and that's oceanic preservation right. society. So they made the cove and then they made racing extinction. Um, so I started just volunteering for Rick and going over to Taiji and, you know, documenting that the dolphin slaughter was still happening. It was funny when the cove won the Academy award, um, a lot of people were confused when I said that I was going back to Taiji and, and we're like, wait, why are you going back to Taiji? Isn't that, hasn't that stopped? Yeah, It's over with now. And, I was like, no, it, it hasn't stopped. It's still going on. Why do you think that it stopped? And they're like, well, the movie. Was I mean, made. The, the movie won the Academy Award. I just, I guess, I just assumed it would end after the movie won the Academy Award. And I was like, oh no, yes. it hasn't ended. It's still going on, and it is still happening. Um, it feels, you know, it's one of those issues that you just feel really helpless about because mm-hmm. you can you can stop it by of course not supporting dolphin shows and not going to places like SeaWorld um but when you're actually physically there you know there's nothing you can do to to help them you're sort of just bearing witness it's it's a very tough trip to make i was just there i made my fourth trip there in december so then through working with Rico Berry i started you know, getting really passionate about it. And I wanted to raise more awareness about it. So I was doing screenings all over the place. And um, my brother-in-law is Bob Weir from The Grateful Dead. And yeah, he watched I the that. movie. He, that, first of all, like, hold on a second. Like, your brother-in-law <laughs> is in The Grateful Dead. Like, that's crazy, right? So mm-hmm. you're... Like on what side of your family? So my older sister, Natasha, is married to Bobby. And he's also a super passionate uh-huh. activist. So, of course, when I saw The Cove, I then sent him a copy of The Cove. And I was like, you guys have to watch this. And he was, of course, like everyone who watches The Cove, was so moved and was like, how can I help? Mm-hmm. So we got a theater in San Francisco to donate their theater for the night. And... We did, Bobby played like a little acoustic set, but not, but he played that after we played the Cove. Uh-huh. So in order to see Bobby play, so we had you a bunch had, of deadheads. You, you couldn't leave early. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We had a bunch of deadheads in there and like, you know, doors closed, you watch the film. And then afterwards, um, we did a Q and A and Louie came for that screening. So that was actually the first right. time so that I met, met Louie. Uh-huh. I had emailed with him, but we met for the first time there. And so Louie was there, Rico Berry, um, Bobby then played his set and, um, it was all raising awareness and, and raising funds for, um, Rico Berry's dolphin project. So that's when Louie and I really started to talk. And then, um, then we uh, lit up the Empire State Building, um, mm-hmm. red. Uh, this was not with Racing Extinction, but before we were just doing it to raise awareness about the dolphins that were being killed. And it was when we were there at the Empire State Building, we were having a couple cocktails and, you know, looking at the light. And I said, you know, all these people have seen the cove, but it's like, it's like the activists and the ocean lovers and the documentary film, you know, geeks and the environmental community, but like the people that are actually buying tickets to the dolphin shows are not watching it. Those are mm-hmm. NASCAR fans. Like what if, do you think we could get a Cove car put together? If I raised the funds, if I did like a crowdfunding and I raised the money to go to the race, 
And I asked Louie if he would donate a thousand DVDs to give away to the fans. And I asked Rick if he would come in and sign autographs. And we ended up putting up a crowdfunding page and we raised all the money mm. to go. Mm-hmm. And then it was at the race with the Cove car at Daytona that Louis was filming there. And he kind of said, so I've got a job for you in our next film. And I didn't know what it was. And he couldn't tell me that weekend, but I found out a few weeks later, you know, that they wanted to do projections out of the car. And the funny thing was when they first showed it to me, it was on the projector was on the back of like a van. <laughs> right. So Obscura had kind of mocked up like what they wanted to do. Yeah, it wasn't uh-huh. very sexy looking. Like a pervy. It, it was, yeah, like, yeah, it was like a like, white van with like a projector uh-huh. on the back. And I immediately looked at Louie and I was like, I mean, you want it to be an electric car, right? And he's like, you gotta he's make like, it sexy. Yeah. And then I immediately was like, well, then we have to get a Tesla. And gotta so call Elon. Yeah, so then I uh, then I reached out to Elon and so, hold I on took a Louis. So first of all, like, how do you reach out to Elon? Like, how does that happen? Um, so I had already been Did in you, contact you with him? Elon about yeah, we had already been in contact just because I mean naturally when there's a, an electric car coming out that's fast, like that was something that um, interests me, and so we and we had also connected. Um, there was a film called uh, Revenge of the Electric Car mm-hmm. that um, it was the same guy who did Who Killed the Electric Car, Chris Payne. Um, and I did some driving in that. I drove uh, Chris Payne's little roadster. Um, so I had met Elon at that, um, the premiere of of uh, Revenge of the Electric Car. And we had emailed a bunch before. And so anyway, so I just, I told him, like, I really wanted him to meet Louis Sahoyas. And so I took Louis to SpaceX and mm. we showed Elon the whole idea of, like, these cool projections and we want to, you know, put this big projector on the car and it was it had it definitely evolved a lot more than um than yeah, it was when we showed you him like imagine a, this super james bond like i mean that movie that car is like out of a crazy movie like it could be in fast and the furious or something i mean it's so sexy and awesome and unique yeah yeah i mean we we hadn't even dreamed up the the color changing thing at that time it was really just all about the projections i don't even think we had dreamed up the the carbon dioxide and methane uh camera either i think it was just all about the projections at that point um, and Elon was, of course, like, oh, that's awesome. And then the one thing that, that we, you know, the favor we had to ask for, because at that time you could not get the fast, sporty versions of the Tesla with vegan seats. Right. It was only leather. And so I was like, oh, is it, like, we can't have leather in the car, but we still need the fastest one. So then he was like, no, no, I can do that. And, but it was a big pain because they had two separate lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I asked for my car for the same thing because I ordered my car around right. the same time that we ordered the Racing Extinction one. And then, you know, by fall of that year, they had changed the line so that all, now you can have vegan seats in any, in any Tesla. Yeah. And they've even got a vegan um, leather that's in, um, that they started to offer with the Model X. That's pretty new too. I mean, I know that it was a, it was kind of a running thing for a while that, that you know, having the, the full vegan interior. They didn't initially have that, did they? So they had, um, they always had the cloth seats, but they were only available in like the base model. You couldn't, if you got the right, I got performance uh-huh. version or the performance plus, which is what we got for Racing Extinction and what I bought, 
it was only leather. Gotcha. So, but then, you know, we, we, he definitely made the exception and then they changed it. I mean, that same year it changed to where and anybody could get it. And then you just tell them that you want the steering wheel to also be vegan mm-hmm. and they'll do a vegan steering wheel. What is that guy like? What is, v- what is Elon like? What is Elon like? I mean, he's a genius. <laughs> he's amazing. Um, he's great. I mean, he's just, he's, trying to change the world for the better and he's doing it. You know, he's um, incredibly smart. He takes on huge, huge challenges and just makes them happen in many ways. Um, you know, I, I think he's just uh, one of the most influential and is changing the world in a way that nobody has before. Like I know people yeah. like to compare him to Steve Jobs and it's like, yeah, Steve Jobs was amazing, but like, phones and iPods is not the same as like rockets that are going to take us to Mars and make us an interplanetary species. Like that's a yeah. totally different kind the of Hyperloop changing the world. And the solar farms and the, and you know, Tesla. It's like the, the diversification with which his big dreams are propagating is, is just beyond prolific. Like it's insane. Like what he's dreaming up and then actually actually manifesting right it's really quite something yeah i mean he he's got to be us. like when you talk i mean it's like he's he, he just yeah he's a genius but like you can't be a normal person like you know like and he is a normal is person he? yeah he's funny he's got a great sense of humor he's yeah he's great i mean he is a normal person i know like i don't mean that pejoratively but i mean like unique and and, you know in very specific ways i always feel i often feel like when people are talking to elon that sometimes he's like trying to slow down his brain to be stupid enough to understand (laughs) normal people he's got to dumb it down so that he can be present with whatever he's hearing yeah i mean i think he's just you know he's he's he thinks about Mm -hmm. really big issues really big deep things like um artificial intelligence is something you know that i started to learn about that's very scary i don't know if he's yeah i mean i'm i'm up on that i mean he's one of the few uh you know influential individuals who's coming out and saying listen you know this is really scary stuff we got to like really think hard and long about how we're doing this or we're going to get ourselves into some really big trouble and you know he's sounding alarms that i think other people think are premature but you know i i would stake my uh bet in his perspective there's a really good book that um, I read on Elon's recommendation about artificial intelligence. It's called um, Our Final Invention. If that doesn't right, like, like it's all baked into that title, right? <laughs> yeah. Right there, we're going to innovate ourselves right out of our 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 survival, it's, our ability to survive. It's a fantastic book. Mm-hmm. Um, you should definitely, if, if it interests you at all, this whole AI thing, I would definitely check it out. Um, I mean, yeah, there's just so many, yeah, he's involved with like so many interesting things, but he's, yeah, I mean, he's funny and he's nice and he's kind and he's caring and he, you know, he's overwhelmed by all the stuff that he's doing, right? Like he's got SpaceX and Tesla and like, it's a lot that he's doing. And I remember when we walked through the factory, like he was talking about like, 
you know, none of the other three car companies were building an electric car. Like, it's not like I didn't know, like the odds were against Mm -hmm. me and I was most likely going to totally fail and that this was going to be a total nightmare. Like, and he, you know, at the time they were losing tons and tons of money. They had just won Motor Trend Car of the Year, but they were still losing millions and millions every quarter. And, you know, because they were having to invest so much in the infrastructure and the charging and in developing the cars and it was just so much. And I mean, he basically said like, I I did it because like none of them were doing it and mm-hmm. they weren't gonna do it. Mm-hmm. And it's true, they were not, yeah. none of the big three were making any sort of effort to get us off of fossil fuels. And it pisses me off because it's this, it's this thing of like the old guard that doesn't have to innovate because we're just stuck with their product because all of us have to have wheels. We all need to get to work. We all need to, you know, drive around. We have to have cars. And there was no choice in the system for so many years. The oil companies drill for the oil and the car companies sell us these internal combustion engine cars. And you have no choice. Even if you hate the oil companies, you had to you know, own a car and drive a car. And, and, and those companies are, are living and breathing on quarterly profits. So there's a lot more incentive to make sure that your bottom line and your revenues are on point, uh, you know, for Q1, Q2, you know, whatever, than it is what's happening in 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's because these people, they're, you know, they're not the, the executives that work in these companies. Like, you know, I wouldn't vilify them. They're just capitalists doing their job and they're trying to protect their job, right? So who's the person who's in charge of, of foreseeing and forecasting, you know, beyond that, like that person is going to go to the CEO and say, you need to take all of this revenue and reinvest it in, in new ways of manufacturing so we can develop batteries. And, you know, it's like, that's going to end up in losses, Right. Right. And Wall Street's not going to look favorably on that. So systemically, it doesn't encourage or induce those companies that are stuck in that system to, you know, do what Elon's able, you know, has been able to do. But he I mean, he came really close to failing. Like Tesla came really close to going under. And I'm. I'm super stoked to see all these new electric cars that are coming out and how all the other companies are jumping on the bandwagon. Now it's great. But to me, my, you know, my loyalty and my respect will always lie with Tesla because if Tesla hadn't done what they did, nothing would be changing. Mm -hmm. These guys are only building electric cars now because they have to compete with Tesla. They don't have a a choice. The market has been created and they've got to compete in that. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. Yeah. So, I mean, even if you take away like SpaceX and AI and solar and you just focus on what he did with the transportation industry like that alone i think has changed the world in a bigger way than apple and racing extinction is this big success tons of people see this movie and and you have since gone i mean you've done a lot of things you've like marched with mark ruffalo and leonardo dicaprio you spoke at the you spoke at the un in geneva right like you're traveling a lot and and you know you're not just at the veg fest like you're you're brand you're really you know in front of influential crowds of people. So how do you think about, you know, how you approach those kinds of people and, and, and carry the message? I mean, I hope more and more people will start speaking up about this stuff. I feel like, um, I feel like one of the reasons people don't speak up is because, you know, Leo gets trashed all the time for being an environmentalist, yet he flies on a plane. (laughs) 
And I'm like, mm-hmm. what do you expect Leo to do? Is he supposed to like ride a bike to, I mean, can we please be a, a little ba- bit. A Bakley Jr. on it? Yeah. Can we be like realistic here? People, you know, I mean, when we marched in the climate march, the people's climate march in New York, like I remember there was a reporter coming up, like trying to harass him and, you know, saying something like, oh, you know, it's great that you do all these great things. Do you want to talk about the fuel use on the yacht that you were on or, you know, just these ridiculous um, people that are so critical. And I see that on when I share stuff that Leo does, I'll see, I'll always see these negative comments about, oh, you know, really rich coming from him. You know, is he getting on his private jet and flying off to some yacht? And I'm just like, he has done so much to help the environmental movement. He does that, you know, auction every year in San Tropez. He's raises like $40 million at those events. And that all gets given away to these wonderful environmental organizations that are on the front lines that are fighting, you know, for all these really important issues all over the globe. And so yet, but if Leo flies on a plane, like he's just, Mm -hmm. you know, he's ruined it all. And I feel like because people attack, like if somebody comes and speaks out about an issue, they get attacked so much because you're not perfect. Well, none of us are perfect. All of us have a carbon footprint. There's nothing we can do about that. You know, I mean, but it's going to make the next person that, you know, the next version of Leo think twice about right. dipping his or her toe. In yeah, they don't. It's like, I don't, I don't need this. You know I don't what I mean? want to get all the crap that he's getting. So why would I go March? Leonardo right. DiCaprio doesn't have to do anything that he doesn't want to do. You right. know, he's making a conscious choice to, you know, spend a lot of his time and resources in this realm so that he can leverage the influence that he has through the movies that he's made to make a positive difference. And if that means he has to get on a plane, because by getting on a plane, he gets to go to a certain place right. where he has the potential to influence influencers and raise money or whatever it is, you have to factor that in to the total carbon equation right. that gets calculated into the cost-benefit analysis of the work that he does. He has by far more than offset the impact that he's having when he gets on a plane, and that really frustrates me. And that's one of the things that, that just bugs me, and it makes me think, well, you know, if I was some up-and-coming actor, maybe I wouldn't go march in the climate march because I'm seeing all these hor- horrible you know, comments to Leo. So, you know, hats off to Leo for being, you know, brave and being out there and having to deal with all the crap that he deals with because of it. But he's, he is doing so much for the environmental movement. And he's, you know, he really believes it. He's truly like an environmentalist through and through. Um, So I have tons of respect for him and Mark Ruffalo as well. He's amazing. He's come to a couple of my races. Mm. Um, We did a race car in 2014 that was um, fighting for uh, 100% renewable energy. So it was in conjunction with a group called the Solutions Project that works on uh, to accelerate clean energy. And Mark Ruffalo is one of the founders of that. Um, And he's just great. Like he, he went up to the, um, to the DAPL, uh, uh, March or the the camp and brought solar panels mm. up there so that they were able to have power. Like he's just so cool. He's totally, you know, he's on the front right. lines and that's the kind of stuff that I like. That's the kind of activism I like. I 
you know, I mean, petitions are great and writing letters are great, but there, there's nothing I feel like more rewarding than like actually like being on the street and yeah, show up. Like it's great to share it on Facebook. That's awesome. But like, we need you to like take to the streets. Like I'm going to go up to DC for the climate March. Um, on April 29th, there's going to be a huge March. There's also one on earth day on April 22nd called the science March. Um, but I can't be there for that. I, we're actually doing a screening of racing extinction at earth day, um, Texas. So I couldn't go to that one, but I'm going to drive the Tesla up to the, to the climate March. And, um, I think it's going to be huge. Uh, Al Gore just said he was going to be marching. Um, so I think it's going to be big. That's cool. And his, his new movie is coming out soon, right? The follow up to an inconvenient truth. Have you seen it yet? Have you heard anything about it? I haven't seen it yet. Um, I don't know if it'll be at Earth Day, Texas. I'll have to look. One of the new environmental films that I'm really excited to see is a film called Chasing Coral. Mm. It's by the same people that made Chasing Ice, um, Jeff Orlowski. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I have heard amazing things about it. It um, it debuted at Sundance. And actually, Luis Ahoyas, our director from Racing Extinction, was there. And he said it was just really fantastic. Oh, that's and cool. Um, so I'm excited to see that. That's playing at Earth Day, Texas. So I'll see it next week. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's so many good films coming out. Leo did that, um, the film that aired on Nat Geo, um, before right. the flood. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, I mean, we, the he more, also, the better, he the also more, the merrier. is responsible for Cowspiracy getting onto Netflix. Yes. That's another thing he didn't have to do. You know, he put his name on that movie. Yeah. That's a fantastic and movie. And are, are Leo and Mark working on another uh, documentary, like a more like fracking oil industry oriented film? Um, I don't know if they are. Mm. Is that what you heard? I yeah, maybe I heard it wrong though. I don't know. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know. I haven't. And heard Louis's anything working on the that. Game Changers movie, right? So yeah, that'll be exciting. Vegan athletes, and this is okay. So when we were at Daytona and we were giving away the vegan food. And I'm kind of little, and it was so great because I had David Carter standing next to me. And I think for guys, you know, they see me and I'm short and little and petite, and they think, well, you're vegan, but you're this little girl. And so I was like, kind of, yeah, that's David. that's David Carter. He's like a NFL player and he's vegan. And they were like, really? I even thought that was funny. There was a couple. And, uh, when I told them, you know, that he was vegan, the wife looked at looked at me, looked at David, and then said to her husband, um, so or actually no, sorry, she said to she turns to me and she said, Will my husband look like that if he goes vegan? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's a hundred percent guarantee. <laughs> so funny. Um, so yeah, the Game Changers movie that Louis, that Louis is working on now is um, all about vegan athletes, and it's mm. all these amazing people like. You, I'm sure you were going to be in the film, no, right? I'm not, I'm, I'm not in the movie. I'm not in the movie, but I'm excited to see it. So it's all it's all these amazing vegan athletes. It's like really badass athletes, right? Like UFC fighters and MMA fighters and football players and these really tough guys. And it will dispel that myth, you know, that silly myth that you can't get enough protein from a plant-based diet. I got asked that on the airplane ride here when I was flying here to LA and I told the um, flight attendant that I was vegan and the guy next to me turns to me and said, he's like, oh, you're vegan. I have a friend that's vegan, but how do you get your protein? 
I just, it's like a question as a vegan that you just answer over and over and I try so hard to not get annoyed by it, but it's just, it happens almost every yeah, day. You got to get up for that question. How do you answer it? What do you say? I say that, uh, that there's a lot of misconceptions about protein and what it is and how much we need. And what I have learned is that plants have protein in them. And I've been yeah. doing this for over 10 years and I just turned 50 and I can go out and kill it with the best of them. I never had any problem building lean muscle mass or mm -hmm. recovering in between workouts. And I've been able to do things in my forties that I never thought it would be possible for me as an athlete. Uh, and it turns out like you can do just fine without animal protein. Uh, yeah. and it's really not what we need to be thinking about or worried about, but you know, it's the question that comes up. It's what everyone wants to know. And so I try really hard to make sure that I'm present for that. I think if you scoff or you, you get irritated, like it's hard. that's not going to, you know, that's not going to be a productive conversation. I know I've, I have to work on that a little bit. Cause that, pay, that I just, I've heard it so many times that it like, it bugs me now when I hear it, I'm just like, really? Oh, question know, again but, but i know you're I'm projecting to... onto them as if that person had asked you a hundred times i know and for them it's brand new <laughs> that's something right? i need to work on so. um because that's sort of like my pet peeve when people ask me that um but yeah i feel like i mean i feel like we're taking off right we're slowly taking over the world it's a super exciting time. I've never seen more mainstream receptivity to these ideas, mm -hmm. whether it is, you know, animal rights, environmental concerns, you know, the health implications of the food that we're eating. Uh, people are waking up and that is due in no small part to uh, the poor health that people find themselves in, the recognition of the environmental damage that we've perpetrated, mm -hmm. uh, and a greater understanding of what's going on in these factory farms that have spent decades trying to make sure that we don't understand. But when you have mm -hmm. drones and you have social media, that stuff gets out. And I think the younger generation is much more uh, adamant about transparency and wanting mm -hmm. to understand the you know the chain of custody and how their products are made, et cetera. And so I think we're at a really interesting tipping point where awareness and a willingness to advocate are coinciding and, and sort of congealing in a way that is really creating a recipe for some profound change. And so I'm optimistic and I'm encouraged. There's a lot of work that needs to be done right. to continue to raise awareness and to continue to, you know, get people to actually change their behavior. Cause that's the metric. It's like you can retweet something or share something on Facebook and get a dopamine release and feel like you actually did something, but that's not actually enough. You know, right. you have to like look in the mirror and you have to take stock and inventory of the actions that you're taking and, adjust when they're not in alignment with your values and you know create that behavioral change until it's sustained and becomes just a lifestyle habit and the more and more people that are making those changes you know that that's what creates this groundswell of people that will ultimately lead to a tipping point and so for me it's about fanning the flames of, of positive change like if i see a spark I'm going to go, I'm going to rush over to that spark and, and try to turn that spark into a little bit of a blaze, right? Yeah. And I think we need to think about how we advocate so that we're not throwing water on that spark right. by criticizing them for not being perfect. Like right. the person that criticizes Leo because he flies in a private jet, 
you know, similarly, if if you're, you know, an animal rights advocate or you're a vegan activist and, you know, somebody is telling you about how excited they are about the vegan meal they had yesterday, but they're wearing leather shoes and right. you make the choice to criticize them for their shoes. Right. I don't think that's a productive thing to do. Right. You know what I mean? So why not celebrate the change that they are making and get them excited right. about making more changes or making that change more permanent in their life? Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah, never. You know, absolutely. Um, when you were talking about the wildfire, it it reminded me of something that I always like keep in mind when I'm getting depressed or overwhelmed about all of these problems that the world has. And it was a study that was done in 2011 by a group of scientists that wanted to figure out if there was a tipping point for ideas. Like, is there a point of no return where it reaches a level where it's going to spread to the rest of the society? And um, after doing quite a bit of research, they found that if just 10% of a population has an unwavering belief in an idea, that it's actually inevitable that the majority of the rest of the society accept that idea. And so 10% feels really doable, right? Mm -hmm. I think across the board, the, the three things that I have the most um, excitement about as far as like solving all these problems or helping slow slow down what we're doing is solar power which is dropping in price you know drastically and is in many cases already cheaper um, than coal uh, electric cars which we already talked ex mm -hmm. talked extensively about and plant-based diet like those three things i feel like we're at 10 percent or we're rapidly approaching 10 percent where I don't think there's any any ability for anyone to stop those three from spreading across the whole world. Well, yeah, I think it's accelerating. And I think the key to success, the way that you win that battle, is you take a page out of the Elon Musk playbook. When he created a an electric car, he didn't create like a little, you know, crappy little Kia thing that like no one that you would be embarrassed to drive in. He's like, if I want to, if it's going to be environmentally sustainable, it can't be a sacrifice for people. So not only does it need to be fast and cool and beautiful, uh, it has to be better than everything else available right. in every category. And then it becomes inevitable that you are going to desire it. And I think you need to apply that template to, you know, these other systems. So when you look at food, the vegan food options have to taste better. They have mm -hmm. to be price competitive, if not cheaper. Mm -hmm. They have to be convenient and 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 more sustainable. So when you if you can check all of those boxes, so it meets the price point, it actually tastes better. It's healthier for you. Yep. You know, no animals are. All of those things have to be in check, and you remove all the excuses and the obstacles between that product and the sort of suspicious consumer, right. right? Where it becomes like, of course I would buy this. This is just a better product, right? So right. you have to out innovate because you're not gonna win by expecting people to sacrifice taste and all these right. things. It's just not gonna work, you know what I mean? So food has to be better, you know, and, and that applies to clothing. Like, you know, there's a lot of, we, we still need, we have a long way to go with, with the clothing industry, I think. And there's, yeah. look, there's, you know, quote unquote, vegan clothing out there that is part of the fast fashion industry that is you know creating all kinds of havoc on the environment so it's not mm -hmm. as simple as just 
animal free. Like right. it's, 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 it's more complicated than that. Right. But to Absolutely. the extent that we can continue to innovate across all of these industries, um, and, and, you know, pull an Elon Musk in every category, then you win. One of the, um, places that I think is doing that and is going to do that is have you had the impossible burger yet? I haven't yet. Uh, I have not. Yeah, I haven't tried it yet. But okay, I, but I, so, I'm going. It's it's on the it's on the list. So right before yeah. I raced at Daytona, I went to their um, to their headquarters in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and Louis was with me too, and we took a tour, and I was totally blown away. I mean, the last time that I like walked through a company, I was like, whoa, this is gonna be huge. The last time I had that feeling was when I walked through the Tesla factory. Um, they're doing some cool stuff yeah, over there. Exciting. So next time you're in San Francisco, you I should will definitely, definitely do that. stop in there. I just uh, had Bruce Friedrich on the podcast. He's oh, yeah. you know very involved in that company and Memphis Meats and some of the other you know plant based you know startup food industries. Yeah, and we talked extensively about Impossible. I mean, they just opened this huge facility in Oakland, right? Yeah. So they're going to be able to scale manufacturing because the big thing with that is. The price point, so they have to reach scale in order to make it an affordable right. product. But everybody who's tasted the Impossible Burger says it's unbelievable, like it's indistinguishable from beef, right? It's amazing. I mean, I I don't know how they did what they did, but when we were walking through, you know, their lab, there was there was like one room that was like sealed off, and you could see the scientist sitting in the in the middle of the room, and she was. They were explaining that she was just smelling she was just smelling mixes of different Mm -hmm. smells and because your taste buds and what you're eating and tasting is very much tied to what you're smelling so she was just all these computers around her and she was just like distinguishing different smell i mean i was just so (laughs) impressed with what they had going on there and they hadn't opened that big um the big uh production uh, side yet that they just opened right. so they were just making smaller amounts at that time but yeah now they're I mean I think I think they're going to do well and there's room for you know there to be a lot of vegan companies that can be successful out there but I was really impressed by what they were doing and um, yeah I mean there's I think- more and more every day I feel like every time I go to the grocery store I'm seeing new vegan options that weren't there the last time mm-hmm. I went yeah, for sure. And I, I think the other kind of aspect of that equation of succeeding or, or reaching that 10% tipping point uh, from a you know macro business kind of Wall Street perspective is, is that there is huge opportunity, huge you know profit opportunity in moving into this space. So do you want to be part of the old system mm-hmm. or do you want to be on the Elon page and innovating and be part of the opportunity that's presented by creating these new, you know, these new plant-based foods, whether it's in food or it's in fashion or whatever consumer product uh, that is kind of in alignment with these more environmentally friendly practices and right. et cetera. So I think it's cool and I, I see it moving in that direction. I wish it was moving faster. You know, there's certainly a lot of work to be done, but I think yeah. it is a really cool time. And I, I just feel excited to be, you know, around for it. Yeah. It's an exciting time to be alive. And just on the note that you made about clothing, um, the Vegination shirt that I gave you mm-hmm. is Thank printed. You for that, by the way. Yes, it's printed on sustainable cellulose. Oh, cool. And oh, it's wow. printed at a solar factory. So the, the factory that it's made at is completely powered by solar. 
Yeah, it says it on the label. Vegination made in the USA with 100% solar power and fabric from sustainable cellulose, which yeah. is plant fiber. Yes. That's crazy. I didn't so, know you could make t-shirts out of cellulose. Yeah, yeah. So this actually, wow. the place where I'm making it is not far from here. It's in Long Beach. Oh, cool. Is that um, why you came to LA? No, I was here. Well, I wanted to do this. This is one of the reasons I came here, but I was also um, filming a PSA, which I see you have his name on your which one? wall here with Adrian. Oh, Adrian Green. Yeah, we've been. I've been emailing back and forth about trying to get him on the podcast. Oh, great. So I wish I'd known that. I would have told you to wrangle him a little bit because so, oh, yeah. we came close and then our, we can't because he's always, in, you know, he's traveling a lot. And so and right. I don't want to bug him either. But, right. you know, I think he wants to do it. Um, so maybe, so the, maybe I'm going to enlist you to help me. Okay. Get him on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. He's really great, and he's got the straw a, thing. He's got a not, he's, he's yeah, all big that's on the what straws. we were doing. Like no sucking anymore. Like get rid stop of your straws. Stop sucking. Hashtag yeah. stop sucking. So yesterday was um, they they did a PSA, and there were a whole bunch of people like, and I don't know when this is going to come out. So like they were like, don't share anything on social media. So. I'm not sure if it'll be, I think it'll be out by the time this airs, but they were like, we're not supposed to talk right, about well, it let yet. Me, but let me, let but me we know. were, um, yeah, I mean, there was like all these different actors and um, Van Jones was there and oh, Philippe cool. Cousteau. And uh, I mean, there were people in and out all day and I was only there um, later towards the end of the day. Um, but yeah, it was all about like trying to get people to not use plastic straws anymore and i actually i don't have it's in my purse but i've got a metal straw that i've been carrying around in my purse um that i got from the plastic pollution coalition like years ago they go to like uh -huh. concerts and big events and they just give away these these metal um straws and, and now now like once you become aware of it then it's like another thing like when i go to the grocery store and i see people still using plastic bags i'm like really seriously yeah. like still plastic now now that's happening with me with the straws now i'm sitting in the bar and i'm like looking around and i'm just seeing all those little plastic you know, right. uh, black stir or straws and straws are the new plastic them, bag. They are. It really is. So now I'm like really sensitive to it. I'm seeing it everywhere. And, uh, yeah, now every restaurant that I go into, I'm like, have you guys thought about, right? So we need, switching. we need metal straw companies. There's your, there's your market opportunity. Yeah. Right? Metal glass. And then I even heard somebody saying that there's like bamboo ones mm. that are made that are, you know, really the bamboo grows so fast and Hemp straws. I don't know how we're going to solve it, but I mean, Adrian is, you know, heading up this campaign right, and, right, right. and, and I know that they're going to like, their goal is to go and like get businesses and really big, like, you know, sports teams and things like that to like make the switch. And so you're, you're kind of, if you get the big organizations and the companies to do it and the restaurants and the resorts, you know, then it's not really in the hands of the consumer to make a good or bad choice. It's been right. it, the good choice has been made for them. And I think that's probably the best way to do this because it's just it's just habit. I find that even when I order a drink and I say no plastic straw, sometimes the bartender just out of habit, like Doesn't puts anyway. it in and then says, oh, sorry, oh, I'm sorry. I know you said no straw. And I, it's just habit because I do that with every drink. Mm. And so I think it's going to be hard to get them. They, they're not going to stop using straws. It's just they have to be swapped out for something that's not ending up in the ocean and killing all the animals that we're killing. Ugh, we're just an awful species, aren't we? I'm, I'm a big believer in like we have 7.4 billion people on the planet. Like this is, this is one of the things that I find to be 
frustrating that I feel like a lot of the environmental community doesn't talk about. It's like the big white elephant standing in the room that nobody mentions. But, you know, if you if you read on what the ecologists have found and what they say that like humans, if we were all living in like relative, um, you know, prosper, that the amount that the earth can handle is like 2 billion. Mm -hmm. We're adding like 300,000 people to the planet every day practically. Mm -hmm. And so like imagine a city. And so as much as like going, like I'm, you know, vegan, solar, electric car, if we keep adding, 300,000 people more every day to the planet, like net growth. I mean, this is just, it's simple math. This is not sustainable. This, it cannot, uh, we cannot keep going on this route. And so I've started talking about that a little bit. And, you know, there's like 134 million orphans in the world that are looking for homes. So if you, you know, have that real, you know, drive to be a parent, there is that option of, you know, helping a child that's already here on earth that doesn't have a family. And when I talked about this, I was at an environmental event and I kind of threw out my normal talk and I just talked about population and it was so sweet after I left. Um, I was waiting for the elevator and this girl, like maybe in her early twenties came running up to me and just gave me the hugest hug. She almost was crying and said, thank you so much for talking about the orphans because if my mom had had her own kids, she never would have found me. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, this is like, this is an important issue we need to start talking about. So that's like the next, I feel like that's the next big thing that it's an uncomfortable subject. I know people get really uncomfortable with it, but um, for environmental reasons, we don't need to keep increasing. Like we at least need to start talking about like, choosing just to have one or two Mm -hmm. so that you're just like replacing yourselves and you're not bringing like the numbers up then you know two is at least then you're not growing population but it's like people are having you know what's that family that's on discovery channel that's had like 19 kids and then they've got like 50 grandkids already and i'm just like and you're like glorifying these people and putting them on a tv show like well, it's a human no. curiosity, you know. I, I mean, I have four kids, so okay. I'm so, sorry, well, two stepsons and two daughters. Okay, <laughs> but, you okay. know, and our nephew lives with us too, so we took him in. But, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I can't, I can't disagree with that. I, I haven't, pra- I haven't practiced that in my life. But yeah, and that, I mean, that's that's okay. I mean, we need people to still have kids right like it wouldn't be great if everybody made like me and my husband consciously made the choice to be child child free Uh and that was partly because i i had a professor at ucsd a biochemistry professor actually that one day we came into class and he's like we're not talking about biochemistry today i'm showing you a film about population and i was just blown away and i remember walking all across the campus to talk to him about population so um, we certainly need people, especially wonderful people like you that are doing great things for the planet to keep breeding, but we also need to m- make it okay and normalize it a little bit for people that make the choice to be mm-hmm. child-free and to not feel like judged and not feel like, um, yeah, there's like just when, a, are gonna, when are you going to stop with this race car stuff and start having babies, right? Yeah. That oh my God. When I got married one of the people at the wedding like you know more more distant relative on my husband's side was like congratulating us and said so you're gonna i mean now you're gonna stop with the racing right now that you're now that you're married mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was 
like, um, no, I'm sorry. Did you like just quit your whole life because you got married? Yes, no, that's, that's life is over now. not going to happen. Um, but anyways, that's a new subject that I feel like, and I found that when I talk about it and I say, you know, I, I made the choice to be child free. Cause I feel like, you know, with all my activism and everything, it'd be very hard for me to be able to manage like racing and activism and also like mm-hmm. uh, having a child, as you know, I have two nieces, three mm-hmm. nieces, um, two sisters, uh, one sister has two kids and one has one. And it's so much work and there's no way that I would have the energy to be able to do all my activism and, you know, try and manage all of these things. Right, but you shouldn't have to so, justify that decision. But, That's you know, the point. But, but for some reason, like our society feels like you're doing something wrong. If you, I feel like there is that. And you'll find all kinds of communities on, on Facebook that are, you know, like we made the choice to be child free and like they're finding each other because they're trying to find other people that accept mm-hmm. that you made that decision and aren't like, oh, well, you just did that because you're selfish and you're all about your career or, you know, what's wrong with you? You don't like kids. And it's like, no, I love kids. I totally love kids. I love my nieces so much. I love being an auntie. I love coming into town and getting to like spoil them and take them on shopping trips. And I, I love being around kids. It's just that's enough for me and I just want people to start talking about that because I feel like as soon as we start talking about it it normalizes it a little bit and then other people that have been thinking about it are like oh, I've always thought about it but I never bring it up because it's kind of awkward and mm-hmm. it feels kind of like a subject you shouldn't bring up and it's like okay we're at 7.4 billion we're on track to be at over 10 billion people by 2050 can we start talking about population now? Like, when is it okay for us to start talking about it? And I think the answer is now. Mm. I think that's a good place to wrap it up. <laughs> okay. But I can't let you go without um, sort of leaving the listener with some ideas about how to get more involved, right? So if someone's listening to this and they're like, I'm inspired, like, I'm, I'm like, I want to do something. So... Obviously, you can modify your own behavior. You can be more mindful and conscious about the choices that you're making around food and the consumer products that you're choosing and the, you know, the greenhouse gas emissions that you're contributing to the planet and make adjustments that way and understand that in this culture where we feel disempowered or like our vote doesn't count, that there are really some very powerful, tangible simple changes that you can make that can make a difference that make a real difference Mm -hmm. but beyond that if somebody wants to get more involved in the kind of activism side of of this equation do you have places that you recommend people can visit i mean obviously your website and all that kind of stuff to learn more about you but are there certain um nonprofits that you think are better than others or how can people you know dip their toe in and, and and start to you know, flex their muscles in, yeah. in the world in which you live. So there's so many great nonprofits out there um, and so many organizations doing great things. But some of the ones that I'm personally, you know, dedicate my time to working with is um, Oceanic Preservation Society, which is the group that made mm-hmm. um, the Cove and Racing Extinction. 
obviously Rick O'Berry's Dolphin Project, um, you know, who Rick is the star of the Cove. And, and really, I feel like, you know, the godfather of the anti-captivity movement um, for cetaceans. Um, and then the Solutions Project is the group that I've been working with on clean energy issues. So that's all about, you know, letting people know that it's possible for us to get 100, to 100% renewable energy. And one of the guys that, um, and this is the organization that we talked about earlier about Mark Ruffalo, one of the founders is a guy named Mark Jacobson, and he is a professor at Stanford, and he specializes in energy. And he's created this amazing plan for every single one of the 50 states, how each of those states can be run off of 100% renewable energy. Oh, wow, so there's no cool. like excuse where, you know, the government or he's the like, governor is like, is like, oh, yeah, I mean, but how would we do it? And he's just, he's got an actual plan for every single state wow. on how they can get there. Um, and he's just, he's just really brilliant. And so I, I like, the thing I like about Solutions Project, it's like all these people with different there's a business guy on it and there's you know the scientist mark jacobson and then you've got ruffalo who's reaching um you know a a broad group of people through his you know being a famous actor and they've just they've got this interesting mix of people from all these different kinds of worlds um so when i ran the clean energy cars it was with them um, but I just, I mean, there's obviously tons of amazing, uh, groups out there. I've also been, um, my partner with the vegan powered car was a group called a well-fed world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like their philosophy is to combat two, um, issues of suffering that shouldn't exist in the world today. Um, one being human hunger and the other being animal suffering. And so they go into areas that are, um, struggling with hunger and they bring in vegan food. Mm-hmm. And so it's reducing suffering not only for humans but also for the animals um and then world animal news um uh, which is katie cleary's group i don't know if you're familiar with Uh -uh. it's called world animal news and it's just all all it's like basically like a like a cnn but just about animals (laughs) so any animal news story will will go up there and um, they were also a partner with the the vegan powered car. So I was actually really close to having to cancel the vegan tent because um, I had raised enough money um, from a well-fed world, had sponsored the race car. So the race car was taken care of. But then I went crowdfunding mm-hmm. to find the funds to, um, to, to have the tent and give away the food and bring in the chef. And Has anybody else ever crowdfunded a NASCAR? I don't know if anybody else has. That was the third one that I've done. The first one was The Cove in 2012, then Blackfish in 2014, and then this vegan-powered car. And I don't know if anybody else has done that. That's a really good question. I don't know if on that really high you know on the higher levels where it's really that expensive. I'm sure people have done it in the lower levels of the sport Mm -hmm. where it's a little bit Mm -hmm. cheaper. Um, but thankfully, yeah, we had such good coverage and so much positive, uh, feedback on the vegan powered car and the tent and the food giveaway at Daytona that, um, both a a well-fed world and world animal news are coming back again to do Talladega on May 5th. So that's the one that I would love for you to come. I mean, it's. You've never been to a NASCAR race, never so, right? Been. Landon's is... invited me a couple times, and I've never, I've never been able to make it work. Well, he'll schedule, he'll be racing look. that weekend too. So I'll race on Friday, and Landon will be racing on Sunday. And in the meantime, you're also going to have free vegan food right. to eat at my tent all weekend. All so right. it's going to be hard for you to say no to this right. one. I think I'll, ch- I'll I'll look at the calendar. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> okay. 
Um, and I'll put links in the show notes to all of those organizations that thank you. you just spoke about. Um, and that's it. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. That yeah. was really fantastic. I really appreciate it. Uh, you are a bold, strong, fearless, powerful female leader. We need more people like you. And so I really appreciate the work that you do and the love that you put into the advocacy and how you merge sport with advocacy, I think is a really cool model that I would like to see more athletes uh, emulate. And uh, it's just amazing what you've been able to accomplish. So I'm excited for you for Talladega, but more importantly, I'm excited to see kind of what you do over the next couple of years. It's been really cool spending time with you. Thank you, it was an honor to be here. Great, so um, if you're digging on Leilani, the best place to get in touch with her is your website, leilanimunter.com, and you're pretty easy to find on Twitter and Instagram, so just your name everywhere pretty much, right? Yeah, actually, so the website to send them to would be um, leilani.green. Oh, okay, that's there's right. A new, yeah. There's new, a new extension that's .green, so that instead too. of .com, okay. it's kind of like, well, I, I feel like it's sort of for environmental organizations more but um yeah so i bought leilani.green because i felt like i had to move away from carbon free girl because i'm 43 years old now i turned Uh 43 on race day at daytona and i was like i feel like i've sort of outgrown the girl thing (laughs) like i can't really call myself carbon free girl anymore call yourself whatever you want i know i just feel like yeah at 43 i'm i'm getting a little old to call myself girl um, so anyway, so that's when I was like, I have to do something new. So I did Leilani.green. I love it. Yeah. Great. And Leilani Munter on Twitter, Instagram, all those other places, right? Yep. Just, well, I just do Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I know everybody's doing the Snapchat thing, but I just, I think three social networks is my maximum <laughs> right. and I can't learn another one. <laughs> Fair enough. Cool. Well, uh, thanks so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Peace. Lance. All right, we did it. Hope you guys enjoyed that. One quick note, I forgot to mention at the outset of this show that we recorded this conversation quite a while back. I believe it was April 14th that we recorded it a couple months ago, which isn't a huge deal because these conversations are meant to be evergreen. Uh, And this is just because I've banked a whole bunch of episodes. It's taking me a little bit longer to kind of work through my catalog. In any event, uh, the race that we discussed during the conversation, that has already transpired. It went fine. It went great. Uh, it was good for her cause. It was good for the planet. Uh, and I'm looking forward to uh, letting you guys know when she's going to race again. Uh, in any event, give her a shout on the social channels. Let her know what you thought of the conversation. Be sure to check out her website. It's leilani.green, L-E-I-L-A-N-I.green. She's going to be, or she's in the midst of launching this new apparel line as we speak, t-shirts, etc. So keep an eye out for that. And Like I said, I'll keep you posted on her next race. Deal? Deal. Uh, If you guys want to keep up with my training in preparation for the upcoming Otillo, I keep saying Otillo, Otillo, I think it's Otillo in the Swedish accent, uh, Swim Run World Championships. I'm posting daily on Instagram, specifically Instagram stories, and uploading all my workouts to Strava. So if you're intrigued by kind of what I'm doing on a daily basis, check out those accounts. Uh, have you guys checked out our meal planner yet? We got thousands of plant-based recipes just waiting for you to access. Un- unlimited meal plans, grocery lists, everything's totally personalized and customized based on your goals and your food preferences and your allergies and your time constraints. We got 24-7 customer support from a team of experts. 
We have grocery delivery in 22 metropolitan areas via Instacart. And I can't say enough good things about this. I mean, I'm so proud of this product that we have put out to the world. It's super affordable, just $1.90 a week. And here's the thing. Most people that embark on a plant-based lifestyle, they have the best of intentions. Perhaps they think this is going to be the new thing forever. But I think it's something like 8 out of 10 people that try to do this end up lapsing. And the reason for that is that we're busy and we lose focus or we don't have the tools at our fingertips to stay on track. And that's really the inspiration, the motivation, and the intention behind this meal planner product that we have launched. Uh, it's really robust. It basically provides you with everything that you need to embrace a more plant-centric lifestyle and nutrition program for yourself, for your kids, for your family. Uh, I can't say enough good things about it. So if you haven't checked it out, go to meals.richroll.com or click on meal planner on my website on richroll.com. Easy to find, explore it, and uh, have a look. Plant Power Ireland is coming up very soon. We do have a couple spots left. It's going to be July 24 through 31 at Ballyvalon, which is this beautiful manor on 90 acres in the Irish countryside in County Cork. Uh, we're going to be visited by the Happy Pear Lads. Remember those guys from the podcast? They're going to come down for a day. It's basically a seven-day experience intended to transform your life with Julie and I. Uh, we're going to cook. We're going to eat. We're going to run. We're going to meditate. We're going to do tea ceremony. We're going to have these really intensive workshops. We're going to have Ayurvedic treatments. Uh, it's going to be fun too, intense and fun. Uh, and basically the idea behind this experience is to leave you a different person from the person that enters this experience that in essence, at the end of this seven day experience, you will be fortified with the tools and the resources and the inspiration and the education that you need to truly and very substantially transform your life over the long haul. Uh, if you want more information on this, if this sounds like something that you would be into. Again, we only have a few spots left, but they're up and available with a bunch more information at ourplantpowerworld.com. So check that out. Uh, if you want to receive a free short weekly email from me, I send one out every Thursday. It's called Roll Call. Basically five or six articles I came across, a documentary I watched, a video I watched, a podcast I listened to, a new product that I'm enjoying. Uh, just cool stuff. No affiliate links. I'm not trying to make any money off this. It's not a spammy thing whatsoever. People seem to be enjoying it. So if that sounds cool to you and you haven't subscribed yet, do that. Just enter your email address on my website in any of those windows that you see popping up or go to richroll.com forward slash subscribe. Also on my site, we have signed copies of Finding Ultra, of Plant Power Way, of This Cheese is Nuts. We got cool Plant Power t-shirts. We got tech tees. We got all kinds of cool swag and merch. I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering and production. You heard him on the last episode, episode 300. He's doing a good job. Thank you so much, Jason, for all your hard work. Sean Patterson, he is the artistic wizard behind all the graphics that we create all the graphic assets that I share on social media throughout the week related to the episode. That's Sean Patterson. He's doing a great job. Thank you, Sean. And theme music, as always, by Analemma. And for those of you that are new, Analemma 
is uh, my son's and my nephew's band. They're the guys that wrote the theme music for this show. It's been the theme music since day one or maybe episode two of the podcast. It was always intended to be temp music We were until we got to like doing something more professional, but it just stuck and that's the theme and I love it. I hope you guys enjoy it too. In any event, thank you for the love you guys. Again, so grateful to have your attention um, and to have you along for the ride on this amazing journey. It's been over 300 episodes. I just can't even believe it. This experience has enriched my life in innumerable ways, and I'm so honored um, that it is resonating with you guys out there. So really appreciate it. See you guys soon. Peace. Plants. Yeah.